never get tired of that song. I get tired of the campaign, Rob Marinko, but <laughs> that song, that's great. 5.39 the time on a Labor Day. Happy Monday to you all, Royal Oaks. In for Doug McIntyre. Today only, Doug's going to return triumphantly tomorrow. So how are you doing, Rob? Happy Labor Day to you. Oh, glad to be here, Royal. And I don't know if Doug's returning triumphantly, but well, we'll I, see. I think he'll be here tomorrow. <laughs> we'll see. Only More time. Like begrudgingly. Oh, begrudgingly. Only time will tell. So, Rob, are you kind of fed up with the campaign? I mean, do you think it's maybe dragged on oh. or, I don't know, a few years too long already? Uh, you know, I'm a glutton for punishment. I, I kind of wake up in the it's morning. It's never a dull moment. It You're really right. isn't. It really You're isn't. Yeah. Well, That's I mean, enough out of you, Mr. Wang. This is really, I mean, Randy, have you ever seen anything like this uh, This. Cluster arrangement? <laughs> Cluster uh, arrangement. It's fascinating every day. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> Trump's trying to make himself over, but uh, uh, w- w- this business about Hillary not being able to remember stuff, I, I love the the moniker she's getting. She's the Secretary of Can't Recall. <laughs> they actually went through and they totaled up 40 times, she told the FBI, <sighs> she couldn't remember something. So, yeah, you know, yeah, she's got yeah. other stuff on her mind. Stacy Cohen, KABC contributor, is going to help us sort this out. She's from Washington, D.C. Stacy, happy Labor Day to you. And to you as well. So, yeah, maybe it's a little cruel, the Secretary of Can't Recall nickname uh, some folks are giving to Hillary Clinton, but it, it did seem a, a little astounding that, that she was so clueless about everything. On the other hand, you know, if if a, some if somebody is not a techie person, and I'm not particularly, I've had a bunch of devices over the years. Um, I I guess sometimes you you just have uh, in her position, you have people to handle stuff like that. Do you? Is that essentially the defense she's uh, trying to offer the American public? Well, th- that's what we saw. I mean, that came from these documents. It was fairly clear that she left a lot of that up to her very her staff and her aides to sort out the way in which all of this was handled. And so, I, you know, what she appears to be saying is, I, you know, I don't recall or remember much about this. You know, this was thing, these were things my staff handled. And you, you can leave it to the voters to decide if that's good enough for them. I think the, le- the legal term, uh, Royal, is accomplices, I think. Isn't that the... <laughs> well, that's one way to look at it. But, I mean, let's face it. Uh, maybe she's struggling a little bit in the polls. She's got that, that big convention bump, but but now the last couple of weeks, whether it's because people are a little fonder of Trump, and, and that's not a popular theory, but instead the alternative theory is she just continues to slide because, I, I mean, Stacy, I guess the sense of it is from Hillary Clinton's standpoint, yeah, she's got some incoming fire here over over her performance with the FBI, but without any smoking gun devastating emails, really, how many people have yet to make up their mind as to as to Hillary, uh, whether they're going to vote for her based on this whole email kerfuffle? It's a good question. I think the, the larger problem for the Clinton campaign is that a year into this, we are still talking about this. And that can't be good news for her. I think that, her, you know, initially it seemed fairly clear that since she was confident this would be something that she would address and would go away, and it is not going away. And we have, you know, the debate coming up at the end of the month. That needs to be her focus as well as Donald Trump's. We have a race neck and neck this late in the game. That could be a really decisive moment. And so I'm going to go out on a limb and say she is probably preparing for questions regarding this email controversy. And depending upon how she answers it, I guess we'll see if the American public is satisfied. 
Well, and of course, she's taken a lot of flack over the fact that for many months now, she simply has not submitted herself to a full-blown regular press conference. She did have a, a press opportunity. I think it was a group that was basically favorably disposed to her a couple of weeks ago. So it wasn't like uh, you've got aggressive, uh, some hostile press members or, or, or folks who just really want to dig into issues that they haven't had a chance to, to quiz her about. Do you think that that's uh, resonating at all with the American public, that she seems to be running some kind of a front porch campaign and where, where she hangs out with Jimmy Buffett and, and Warren Buffett and all the other Buffetts with billions of dollars, <laughs> but she doesn't actually have a, a press conference? I mean, in contrast to Trump, I mean, every time he wakes up, you know, the first thing he wants to do is just say, you know, any questions, and two hours later, the reporters are exhausted. Do you think that matters to people? Well, I mean, isn't that Donald Trump's strong point after all? I mean, this is a man who excels at performing and, and, and has that is his genre. I think, though, what you're seeing more from a campaign standpoint is generally speaking in this sort of bizarre election we've been facing is that the candidate that dominates the news cycle usually does so for negative reasons. So perhaps the strategy of flying a little under the radar is the best one for her at the moment. You know, it, it may be as simple as that. Um, Donald Trump, whether he gets negative press or positive press, he seems to thrive in that public arena. Where, where very clearly Hillary Clinton, you know, from from jump, was not somebody who was comfortable in that arena, as perhaps her, her husband was. So, you know, I guess we'll, we'll see. I mean, we're, everybody's going to have a chance to listen to her, hopefully get some really tough questions, both of them, at, at this debate upcoming. And, and I think we can expect it to be a very highly viewed debate. We're talking with Stacey Cohan, Washington, D.C., KBC contributor. Last question, Stacey, what's the, uh, what are the odds for getting those third-party folks in on the debate? A, a survey say the American public would like to see the Libertarian, the Green uh, Party uh, person in there, but I guess without 15% registering in the polls, it uh, looks like they probably aren't going to make the cut. Right now, and I, and I do, you know, it, it certainly is something that, that the American public, and perhaps this will be addressed in the future after all the ups and downs we've had, the American public is clearly expressing, you know, we want to hear from more people. And without having a grand stage like a debate, those are, you know, not something that, that they're going to have. You have uh, the Libertarian nominee, Gary Johnson, getting a, a major endorsement from a prominent Virginia paper um, on Saturday night. And, and so... You know, perhaps even the Richmond Times Dispatch, but that's a pretty widely read paper in in that swing state. So, is it something that that should be considered? Sure, I you know we'll see if if they decide to make a last minute change. But you know how these these debates go. There, there's a very formal way that they are drawn up, and and so it is unlikely if they don't reach that threshold that they're going to make the cut. All right, Stacy Cohan from Washington. Thank you for helping us out on this, and you have a great Labor Day. You too. Thanks. 546 The Time, Talk Radio, 790 KABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, a transgender presidential candidate who's been running in every election since 1972. So you don't want to miss this. And you don't want to miss the traffic with Bill Thomas. Bill, happy Labor Day to you. 559 The Time, Talk Radio, 790 KBC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. So uh, Rob Marinko, this lady went nuts on the New York subway. She released a cloud of crickets and peed on herself in, in rush hour. That happens. It, well, the, the people thought it was a chemical attack. Somebody was yelling, she has a jar. Close that. But all they had within the jar was the crickets and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, she said she was going to be sick. She, I said, I have to blank. And she tried to lift her dress. In oh. a word, it was chaotic. It was just utter chaos. People were treating all, tweeting all about it. They took her to the, uh, to the Methodist hospital. But what if she was a Baptist? I mean, that would drive... <laughs> 
to Get Smart. McIntyre in the Morning with Doug McIntyre and Terry Ray Elmer. Six oh seven, the time. Talk radio seven ninety K A B C Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Happy Labor Day to you all. Live, uncensored, uninhibited. Sounds like you, Rob Marinko, when <laughs> kids are on your lawn with their ball, right? You know, uh, yeah. are you one of those guys that get off my lawn, kind of, or, or are you a kind of a mellow neighbor? I you, listen, the kids can't hurt the lawn. The lawn's dead. Royals been dead for months. <laughs> There's nothing they could do to oh, it. Oh yeah, there was that drought. Well, really, when I said live, uncensored, and uninhibited, uh-huh. I was talking about KBC presenting the Dr. Drew and Mike Catherwood live podcast. Live show at the Ice House in Pasadena. It happens Thursday night, September 8th. Get your tickets at kabc.com. The first Dr. Drew and Mike live podcast show was wild, so make plans to be at the Ice House on Thursday the 8th. More fun from 790-KABC. Maybe you could do the warm-up act, you know, the- Kids get off my lawn by Rob Marinko. <laughs> Will you stop with the uh, microaggressing with the the age thing, please? Well, Would you that's stop? Funny, you should mention that, really? Rob, because uh, microaggressions—that's what we're talking about here. Uh, the colleges are so protective of our little snowflakes. They really are. Yeah. So students in at least one Rutgers University residence hall are being encouraged to use only language that is helpful and necessary to avoid committing microaggressions. It's part of the uh, school's Language Matters campaign, all right? So victims of microaggressions, they've been studying this, victims are more at risk for illness and decreased immune systems, (laughs) all right? So, yeah, we're we're really going to be standing up to the Russians in a few years. I don't know what's going to happen. So uh, the list of terms uh, that you should not use, these are potentially offensive terms. It includes illegal aliens, Mm -hmm. uh, the word retarded. Apparently, that's not acceptable. Uh, if you, um, they, they've also got different words for microaggression. It's not enough to just call it that. There are micro assaults, micro insults, and micro invalidations. <laughs> well, at least they're not calling the macro stuff, you know. Uh-huh. So they're they're recognizing that you know they're kind of smaller. Uh, so here are some expressions that you uh, really shouldn't use, Rob. Marino. I got my ears ready to be covered. Okay, he looks like a terrorist. Oh, no, 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 no! Forget that. See something, say something deal. No, I think that's probably a microaggression right there. I hear TSA agents say that all the time when I'm flying yeah. as I approach the security. <laughs> thing. Right. You know, really, because yeah. I'm so, you know. Exactly. You fit the profile. I do. So you don't say he looks like a terrorist. You also, for some reason, you're not supposed to say, uh, refer to somebody as a United States veteran. That somehow, what? yeah, that's a microaggression. I don't get it. Oh, here's a phrase that you just don't want to use. That's so ghetto. That's, you've, you've heard the kids say, that's so ghetto, Rob. Of course. Don't do it anymore. Uh-huh. Uh, don't say it. Don't hear it. Don't do anything like that. Mm. Oh, you shouldn't say um, some, uh, that exam just raped me. Now, I, when I was in school, no, I don't think I've, anybody used that expression. No. But apparently the kids these days, uh-huh. they use the expression, that <laughs> exam just raped But you don't want to do that. Because no. uh, you, especially they say you don't do that in the presence of a survivor of sexual assault. Well, I guess and, and you that know makes the, sense. And you know this how, that yeah. they're a, a survivor of sexual assault. They, a, maybe they wear a little 
a little button. Or You're something. asking too many questions there, uh, Marinko. So one school's uh, solution to this is uh, public university is granting students two hours of free speech per week. So it's come to that. You're, you're, you're rationed. So you got the two hours to... There's a speech code at the Northwestern State University of Louisiana uh, that allows students to express their beliefs briefly for two hours a week <laughs> at three predetermined locations. Do these All schools right? teach anything anymore? Well, I te- think they teach microaggressions and how to prevent oh. them. 101, 102, uh-huh. 103. So you, uh, you go to the college and you apparently fill out a form. <laughs> And it allows you to express yourself for one or two hours. You know, your choice. You could go for an hour or two hours um, for every seven days. Um, uh, But it's just the three predetermined locations. So bottom line, you just got to be careful these days. One guy who wasn't careful over the last week or so, uh, Rob Marinko, was Chris Brown. But I'm predicting he's going to skate here. I guess there was this huge standoff at his gigantic home in Tarzana. <laughs> yes, with Ray J. Yeah, and, and there's this gal, uh, Bailey Curran, who uh, she was uh, there at 3 a.m. to discuss a business project, apparently. Well, that's when we all have our business meetings. Yeah, exactly you know. right. And so, uh, but, you know, allegedly Chris waves a gun at her, and so at 3 in the morning she calls 911, and so... They come out, and the, the cops, I guess, for hours and hours tried tried to get the guy out. And I loved her comment. She was saying, well, you know, uh, you're accusing me of wanting publicity. I don't need publicity. I was Miss California Regional, okay? I don't need publicity. And Mark Garagos, his lawyer, of course, is just ripping into her. He's pointing out that she's got kind of a checkered past. She's a little nutty in terms of uh, people threatening her. She she went to court for a restraining order because she thought her roommate was trying to hire a hitman to go after Why her. Why are people still hiring Mark Garagos? Has, has he ever gotten anybody well, from go- prevented anybody apparently from he Fritz. really impressed uh, yeah. Chris Brown, and I, and I predict he's going to keep Chris Brown out of oh. the, out of the Husco. Yeah. All right. Now this ba- Bailey Curran, she had some problems. Apparently, she reportedly um, was was shoplifting in New York City, a thousand dollar Louis Vuitton purse. Uh, so she's got a little a bit of a credibility issue. Plus, apparently, when the cops went in there. And they were looking for drugs or guns or something, and they didn't find anything. And so, no. uh, and so uh, Mark Garagos is, is certainly pointing that mm-hmm. out. Um, she also, Bailey Curran, she had a problem with the, the beauty pageant that she won. She won the regional. She's trying to go on the, to the intergalactic she, level. She had a problem with the pageant she won. Yeah. They, they took her uh, crown away. They want her scepter oh. back. They want her tiara back. They want her crown back. They want her uh, goodie bag. Because in some undefined way, she kind of uh, violated the pageant rules. And I don't know what if, what she did, but they, they feel that she's she's not a good person. Uh, and, and so with her checkered past, possibly grabbing a, a, a purse in New York, Possibly violating the the, the tenets of her uh, beauty bad contest. influence over Chris Brown. Yeah, that's that's I think the bottom line is he may even have a lawsuit against her. Yeah, yeah. Now, but but the story you probably heard this the wild story when you go to Chris Brown's Brown's party. You have a protocol. You have to hand over your cell phone to one of his assistants because they don't want, you know, taking a bunch of pictures and yeah. so on. Okay. <laughs> so he waves the gun at her. She screams into the night, and she gets to the to the uh, um, the gate, and she says to his assistant, oh, by the way, I, you've got my phone. i got to have my phone. 
And he gets the phone and he says, well, here's the deal. You, you're required to sign a non-disclosure statement uh, having been here at this wonderful place. So I'll give you the phone if you uh, sign the non-disclosure statement. And she says, no, grabs her phone and runs. Oh. He gets in the Jeep and runs after her. Mm-hmm. She hides under an SUV while he drives back and forth trying to find her. I mean, this is definitely a movie of the week. The, the Bailey Curran, Chris Brown encounter. So, uh, starring Mark Garagos. That doesn't as, happen in your house? As no, the when you have visitors? You, you know, a couple of times a year. Oh. 614 to Time Talk Radio, 790 KABC. We're going to shift gears because we're delighted to be joined by our friend Jessica Vaughn. She's Director of Policy Studies for the Center for Immigration Studies to uh, talk about this huge issue in the presidential campaign. Jessica, happy Labor Day to you. Happy Labor Day to you. Well, thanks so much. Appreciate you taking time out of your holiday to, to talk with us. And, of course, last, uh, last week, uh, kind of a big week in terms of the uh, immigration issue uh, and the presidential campaign. I mean, it was a pretty astounding week to uh, a day, really, for, for Donald Trump to be down in Mexico meeting with uh, uh, a world leader. And then within a few hours, back in Phoenix, uh, a pretty significant speech. What was your impression of the whole event? I agree. It, it was uh, an amazing day. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm delighted to see that finally we're having this public debate about our immigration policy that's you know, long overdue. Uh, I, I, thought it, I agree with, with all those folks who say that it was a, a good day for Donald Trump, um, both you know, showing that he's you know, going to talk to Mexico uh, about various issues, but including trade and immigration, which are linked a little bit. And then also that uh, the outstanding speech that he gave later that evening, uh, laying out 10 things that need to happen to restore balance in our immigration policy, restore integrity, and repair the damage that has occurred under the Obama administration. So that, you know, that was, that was really uh, a great speech. And, um, Unfortunately, I think some of you know people are trying to. Well, I, I guess one of the problems is that the mainstream media are being confronted with facts that they ignored <laughs> and never reported on, and are now you know having to confront in their coverage of immigration uh, things like the the um, number of crimes committed by illegal immigrants, the public safety impact. The, uh, you know, the effect on American families. It was very moving that Donald Trump had on that stage with him uh, a group of Americans who have paid the ultimate price for the lack of immigration enforcement and lost family members who were killed by people who shouldn't have been here to begin with and shouldn't have been allowed to stay. We're and talking with Jessica Vaughn. She's Director of Policy Studies for the Center for Immigration Studies. Yeah, I think you're right, Jessica, but I, I guess I was a little surprised. Were you surprised that the leader of Mexico would say to Donald, hey, come on down? I, I heard that you know supposedly invited both sides, and Hillary didn't take him up on it, but Donald did. But, I mean, after the whole thing, you know, I'm going to build a wall, Mexico's going to pay for it, and then all the publicity about, you know, talking about criminals and rapists and so on, which was a huge huge issue that in a way propelled Trump, I mean, distinguished him from everybody, but also seemed to earn him a lot of permanent enemies, presumably a lot of, of permanent enemies south of the border. Were you surprised that the, the president said, come on down? I was, because he's made so many offensive statements about Donald Trump, too, that it, you know, 
it, this is a good thing, though. I, you know, I think that um, maybe they were talking about burying the hatchet and, you know, wanting to have a constructive discussion about these very real issues, including the problem of um, the Mexican drug cartels and uh, other issues on our bilateral agenda. But I also thought it was good of Donald Trump to say, sort of, he didn't, didn't say it, but it, it seemed unspoken that he. Um, it can move beyond what he has said. And, um, you know, basically what he was saying is, you know, it's possible to be pro-American and pro-borders without being anti-Mexico. And that really needed to be said, and I thought that was a good thing. Well, it he was showed quite, real maturity as a, as a candidate and a public figure. It was quite a one-day ride for Trump. I mean, to get the invitation, to go down there, it was perceived almost universally as a win for him, his campaign. Uh, he... There was some apparent softening. I mean, you know, he wasn't spitting in the guy's eye. He was sounding diplomatic. Uh, and then he comes back to Phoenix, and he gave a speech that his his political enemies jumped on and said, well, okay, he's reverted. He just wants to round up 11 million people. He won't focus on, you know, criminals. He just wants to break up families. And it seemed to take a little bit away from, from the political victory. Do you think that he has a, a challenge in the next six or seven weeks to try to reach out to people who have questions about the idea of just rounding everybody up and sending them off and letting them reapply? Well, here's the problem is that that's not an option that's really ever been seriously on the table, this idea that suddenly there's going to be a quote-unquote deportation force that is going to be going door-to-door to find every illegal alien in the country and send them back. Um, and I think his, his day last week was to say, you know, this is not just about Mexico. This is about the integrity of our immigration laws. No, you know, nobody ever seriously thought that these mass roundups were going to happen. And his, in his speech, he outlined, you know, he confirmed that that's the case, that, um, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to improve enforcement. Uh, and then when that is working, then we're going to talk about what happens next, but not until we have a system where our laws are enforced and they're working to, to not provide incentives for more people to come here illegally, which is what the catch-and-release policies of the Obama administration do. Um, so I think that was good. He, he needed to do that. He needed to um, stop giving the, the mainstream media and, and his opponent, Hillary Clinton, an opportunity to say, well, all you want to do is you know, try to round up 11 million people, and obviously we can't do that. So they're going to make it sound like some massive flip-flop, but I don't really see that. Um, you know, he's done certainly done a little bit of experimentation, I think, in his position. But if he keeps it on the need for enforcement first, that's a rational policy, and that's what I think the public wants to see. Jessica Vaughn is with the Center for Immigration Studies, and the website is cis.org. Jessica, Republicans are constantly being lectured. Look at the demographics, okay? The white voter percentage is down from something like 70, or about 80 percent back in 2000 when, when Bush beat Gore to uh, around 70, 72 percent now. The percentage of minority voters is up. There is increased sensitivity on this immigration issue. Uh, do you think that Republicans have to temper their message, that Trump has to temper his message over the next couple of months in order to win in November? Well, I think Donald Trump definitely needed to temper his language. 
Um, but I don't buy into this um, uh, thought that the Republican Party is doomed unless it embraces a mass amnesty and expansion of immigration. I, I don't think uh, – I, I think um, Latino and uh, other recent immigrant groups are more concerned with the things that all Americans are concerned with, which is an economy that works and other government policies that work and put the interests of our country first, not the interests of special interests. I, you know, I think what, uh, that, um, what Republicans need to do is find candidates that voters, and especially new voters like um, families of recent immigrants, can identify with. And that means bringing you know, more people who look like the electorate into the Republican fold and and but that doesn't mean compromising on the sovereignty of our country and our um and the importance of enforcing our immigration laws because the people who are hurt most by our failure to enforce immigration laws are people on the margins of society and that's recent legal immigrants um it, that's blacks in many cases and uh hispanic workers who have to compete with this endless supply of illegal workers and you know, that's what we need to focus on. All right, Jessica Vaughn, Director of Policy Studies for the Center for Immigration Studies. Thank you so much for sharing part of your holiday with us. You have a great Labor Day. Thank you. You too. All right, take care. 624 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, a nude riot in France. But first, you got to know what's going on on the freeways, right, Bill Thomas? at the time. Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. So, um, you know, Rob Marinko, they do things differently over in France. Oh? Well, for example, they won't let women wear burkinis, which yep. I guess cover everything with, like, the feet and the face. Mm-hmm. But they let you run around in the buffo on, on the beach. They, they're really big on nude beaches. So the problem is a mass riot broke out on a French nude beach recently. And what happened was a gang of ogling youth Youths, youths, were told to get nude or get lost by the other <laughs> bathers. Okay, mass brawl sparked on the beach. A uh, group of local youths turned up and they just refused to take off their clothes. All right, that's not why they were there. When asked to strip, the youths acted pro- provocatively and started pestering naked female beachgoers. The teens were said to be staring at the naked women, which is a clear breach of etiquette for France's nude beach. <laughs> Their behavior prompted other beachgoers to confront the men, telling them either get nude or get lost. Yeah. How many times have I heard that? Yeah. We like to keep it on a high plane here. Although the the article here kept it on a high plane. The, the headline is Liberté, Egalité, Nudité. <laughs> huh? Now that's very intellectual, okay? It's multiple uh, languages and mm-hmm. it's a little play on words. The argument escalated into a fight of clothed versus unclothed, which punches thrown, sand flung in people's eyes, and insults hurled left and right. Both of them. When plenty of witnesses on hand... What else was hurled in their faces? I don't know. With plenty of witnesses on hand, it wasn't long before somebody alerted the authorities. Cops show up, they race onto the beach in a four-wheeler to calm the scene. It's like David Hasselhoff. I don't know. Where would they pull them out of? I have no idea. Uh, but it does sound like Baywatch, you know. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get into later the issue of uh, Pamela Anderson, the former Baywatch. Oh yeah, game. she's absolutely against pornography now. So things. Oh nice. That's her whole career. I know. It seems a little uh, hypocritical, ironic, and a few other fancy words. So uh, two of the alleged aggressors were caught by police at, after attempting to flee the scene. 
Uh, police investigation continues. I'll bet it does. I've got to be interviewing you people. It's got to be authentic. It's got to be in the nude. I don't know why there would be well, an Irish, Irish cop. cop in France. That's in France. really strange. I don't Royal. do a French accent. Uh, apparently okay? not. Apparently. No, that's fine. <laughs> and I don't do an Irish one either. I applaud your attempt. 631 <laughs> the time. Talk radio, <laughs> 790 KBC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre and Rob Marinko has the headlines. 639 the time. Talk radio, 790 KABC. The place Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre this Monday, Labor Day. Doug will be back tomorrow. So it's all about the Donald and the Hillary and CNN has a double-barreled blockbuster pair of documentaries running tonight. And uh, Gloria Borger is here from CNN to uh, to help us. Uh, she's chief political analyst. Uh, Gloria, how are you today? Good. How are you guys? Doing great. Appreciate you uh, taking part of your holiday to share with us and uh gosh uh this this must have been a, a while in the planning uh, uh i guess oh yeah five pacific uh, five p.m pacific and uh and seven p.m pacific two separate documentaries the first one uh, unfinished business the essential hillary clinton uh, hosted by cnn justice correspondent pamela brown and then uh at seven the essential donald trump which you're going to be hosting uh, and uh Gosh, it must have been a challenge since we seem to be just total immersion over the last year in really both, <laughs> all things Hillary, all things Donald. Well, how did you right. meet the challenge of coming up with fresh facts, fresh angles that, that people might be intrigued by? So while we've been involved in the, in the and thank you for having me, uh, and Welcome. thank you for allowing your listeners to, to know when our documentaries are on, the, the challenge here really was to do something different. We've all been involved in the back and forth and, the, and the, the Donald Trump during the primaries and Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and now Donald Trump and Hillary. What this is is really a biography. And what it does is it takes you through, from Donald Trump's childhood 70 years ago uh, to uh, the current campaign. And that's why it's, it's lengthy. And uh, what was fascinating to me in doing this piece and reporting this piece, you know, I'm a political reporter, and I'm used to talking to political types about candidates that I profile. I did the Mitt Romney documentary uh, in the 2012 election, for example, and a lot of the people I spoke to were people who had known him through the years in politics. Well, Donald Trump has not been a politician. He's been in business. And so the people that I found myself talking to were people who had done work with him in business. And so we take you from uh, his childhood through, uh, you know, his life as a young, uh, hot real estate developer in New York, following in his father's footsteps. His father was a real estate developer in the boroughs of New York, and and, uh, Donald Trump wanted to cross that bridge and and get into the big city and talk about his very successful years uh, when he was younger, at Trump Tower and all the rest. And then we take you into Atlantic City, where Donald Trump was successful and was not successful. And then we take you through the corporate bankruptcies and his comeback, which, of course, as we all know, because we remember this television show very well, The Apprentice, which in many ways set the stage for him on a national scale. He became a national celebrity, well-known and well-liked as a result of that show, which actually set the stage for a national run uh, at the presidency. I also spent a lot of time talking to 
his uh, three adult children, who are his business partners, um, who really give you sort of a sense of what it was like growing up Trump. So I hope people will be able to kind of learn some new stuff about Donald Trump, and um, hopefully we lift the veil a little bit on the man and uh, his life. We're talking with CNN chief political analyst uh, Gloria Barger. She's uh, the host of The Essential Donald Trump on CNN tonight, 7 p.m. Pacific. So, Gloria, when you watch the campaign uh, culminate in the convention and uh, you have the family introduce the candidate to the world, it was kind of gauzy and emotional with with Trump. When you see him, you come away thinking pugnacious and aggressive and uncompromising. So what do you pick up from the the deep look into uh, him, basically his whole life? Uh, Do you you wind up uh, veering to one of those two extremes or another? I think what you see is what you get with Donald Trump. In in talking to people who have known him for 30, 35 years, the thing that stunned me was I'd ask uh, people who have known him for that long, well, is there anything about the campaign that surprised you? Is there any behavior of Donald Trump's during the campaign that surprised you? Is there any decision he made that surprised you? Mm -hmm. And the answer was no. This is the same Donald Trump we have known for decades. And they were completely unsurprised by his success, number one, uh, by his demeanor, number two, by his passion for winning, which has always been, always been key to Donald Trump, as it was to his father. And um, so while those of us who didn't know Donald Trump really well were covering this campaign and we were saying, Oh, he is going to change. He's going to pivot, which is my least favorite word in politics, that, that he's going to pivot or change. He, his friends kept saying to me, and people who have known him for, and who like him and who don't like him, were saying to me, no, no, that's not going to happen. This is Donald Trump. And by the way, they're right. This is Donald Trump. So, you know, I've covered over the years a lot of politicians who change uh, who they are uh, their demeanor, whatever, to fit into a, a, a narrative, a canned narrative. And we've watched Donald Trump try to do that to a certain degree, reading off the teleprompter, et cetera. But his friends and, and people who have known him always came back to me and said, no, 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 no. We will always be the Donald Trump we knew. But isn't that kind of a a fatal flaw? Because it's one thing to trust your own instincts, and and it works out over decades, and he's a multi-billionaire and so on. But when you shift gears and you're doing something completely different, I mean, imagine Donald Trump in the operating room looking over the shoulder of the brain surgeon and saying, no, don't take the medulla oblongata out. Do it this way. And you think that's idiotic. (laughs) Well, he doesn't know ground games. He doesn't know political fundraising. He doesn't know how how dangerous it might be to you know fatally insult giant chunks of the population. And he seems unwilling to accept expert advice. So at the end of the day, I mean, do you think this this, this sort of constellation of character traits is just going to end up being fatal to his his chance for winning? Well, on the one hand, he is trying now, as we see, to accept advice. You know, he's changed his campaign team. He has tried to a certain degree to accept some advice on immigration. Uh, He is uh, working with the RNC on the ground game to varying degrees of success. But I think Donald Trump, more than anything else, is really convinced in the success of his brand. And he, under, and he understands, and this is what he knew during the primaries that none of us political journalists knew, quite honestly, 
uh, and we were we were all surprised, as were his Republican opponents, who all believed he would implode, is that he understood his brand and he understood the success of it. And um, that comes from being someone who has been out front for as long as he's been. And um, he stuck to his brand because that is what has brought him uh, the huge amount of support that he has, his mm-hmm. brand as a truth teller. Now, when you turn to a general election context, there are a lot of things, other things that come into play. And the things that you were talking about because you have to appeal to a broader audience right sure so he is trying to do that and you see in his outreach to minority communities for example something he realizes he has to do you see in the shifting to a degree on immigration and we're still not sure about that shift um and so you you see the reading of the prompter donald trump is less uh, unscripted and more scripted these days because mm-hmm. you have two months left and you really cannot afford a big mistake at this point, which is which is what the debates are all about. Corey Borges is uh, hosting the uh, the CNN uh, special uh, documentary tonight, 7 p.m. P- Pacific, The Essential Donald Trump. Gloria, uh, there's this phenomenon, uh, the secret Trump voter. Uh, you know, the polls, they're wrong. Uh, people are ashamed or embarrassed to say to the pollsters, oh, yeah, I'm voting for Donald Trump. And there's this there's this simmering phenomenon there. And yet the pollsters can't really tell us if, it, if it's there or not. Nobody seems to be able to quantify it or be willing to come up with educated guesses. From your perspective, having gone through this exercise of preparing the documentary, do you have any sense of whether or not there might be below the surface this secret Trump vote? I really don't, and I'll put on my other hat there as CNN's chief political analyst, because this documentary is really about his life more than, more than uh, politics. I, I think we saw a lot of polls that were wrong uh, during the primaries, and I think what we're seeing now is polls that tend to fluctuate with the news. What we are seeing is a group of, of undecided, uncommitted voters, and I think in many ways uh, we don't know which way they'll go, and that's who Donald, Donald Trump is not only trying to appeal, for example, in his outreach to minority communities, to um, minorities, but what he's also trying to do is appeal to those suburban women and more educated voters who might be inclined to vote for him, but they don't want to vote for somebody they believe to be intolerant. Mm-hmm. So they, so he's trying to appeal to those voters as well. I think that um, down ballot races have an awful lot to do with this. You see a lot of Republicans now running on checks and balances, saying, "Well, if Donald Trump loses, you're going to need me." And so I, I think it's more, it's very complicated. It's very complicated this time because. Uh, Trump, while Trump has the Republican National Committee behind him, he has a lot of Republican leadership who are not behind him. And so that makes it uneasy for some Republicans who are normally stalwart uh, Republican voters. Um, I think what Trump will bring into the race are people who have not participated regularly in the past. And so it's hard to, to judge the, the, the impact of that. Uh, yeah, polling is very delicate these days, and it didn't um, do us really well during the primaries. So we can't predict what it's going to be uh, for the for the general. And actually, I would pay more attention to state polls right now 
because that's what you have to look at right. when you're looking at a presidential campaign. When people talk about the, the possibility of a blowout, I mean, they, they use these apocalyptic terms, you know, the end of the <laughs> yeah. Republican Party. And I, and I think to myself, do you remember Barry Goldwater was crushed by Lyndon Johnson and, you know, with, in 64 and then within 16 years, the ascendancy of Ronald Reagan. And then you look at McGovern. Right. I, I think he won one state in 72 and Mondale won one state one, one plus state. D.C. In, in 84. And the Democratic Party seemed to bounce back pretty well. So I wonder why people are, are, are so are, are, are thinking about this in such catastrophic terms. Yeah. I don't think I don't think you're going to have that because of the demographics of the country. I don't think, you know, there are certain states that are red states that we know of and certain states right. that are that are solidly blue states that we know of. That's why the Democrats have an electoral advantage right now in a lot of states, because of the urban demographic, the younger uh, uh, demographic that, that is uh, multicolored, and uh, that helps the Democrats. But, no, I don't think we're demographically going to have any kind of a blowout like, like we saw one way or another with Mondale or Goldwater or, or whatever. Um, but I, I, I do think that uh, the Clinton campaign's goal is to get way above the, the number they need uh, so, that, so that nobody can challenge the results of the election. All right, Gloria Borger. I, oh, sorry, go finish up, Gloria. No, 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 no. I'm going to say, and the, and the Trump people believe that that's impossible for, them, for the uh, Democrats to do. All right, Chief Ch Political Analyst Lori Borger at CNN, The Essential Donald Trump, 7 p.m. Pacific tonight, plus Unfinished Business, The Essential Hillary Clinton, 5 p.m. Pacific. We will be watching, and you have a great holiday. Thank you so much. All right, take care. <laughs> 6.52 the time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre and Bill Thomas. How are the roads looking? Happy days are here again the sky. Above are clear again. 658 the time, talk radio so 790 KABC Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre, and you know that voice, Rob Marenko. Babs. One of your favorites, Barbara Streisand. Yes. Amazing voice. She's leaving the country. Aww. She, if Donald Trump wins, doggone mm -hmm. it, Dad Bernard, she's leaving the country. Would you like to guess what uh, country she's going to go to? Go uh, I have, uh, what? Uh, <laughs> Lower Mongolia. I don't know. <laughs> Is that even a place? I don't know. Uh, either Australia or Canada. She okay, hasn't made nice. up her mind yet. You know, shrimp on the Barbie, Eskimos. Who knows? When did what? all this start? Do you, do you recall? <laughs> uh, I don't. I think it's it's bipartisan. It's non-denominational. There were people who said, you know, if Nixon wins, I'm right. leaving. Right. If Clinton wins, I'm leaving. No has one has any, ever fulfilled. No, I was going to say nobody's right, ever don't. left. But listen to the other. A couple others are going to leave if he wins. Lena Dunham and Chelsea Handler. Oh, I mean, sad. What are we going to do if Babs, Lena, and Chelsea leave? It'll be like a cultural waste. What do they want us to think? Oh, uh, well, I don't know. They want us to vote the right way. But, uh -huh. I mean, without them... Time to get smart. It's McIntyre in the Morning with Doug McIntyre and Terry Ray Elmer. Seven oh seven on a Labor Day morning. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Happy holiday to you all. So Donald Trump is he kind of inching his way back into the race? A lot of people are speculating. Oh, we have a 
guest now, John Zogby, who uh, comes at it from a rather scientific standpoint. He's CEO of Zogby Analytics and author of We Are Many, We Are One, Neo-Tribes and Tribal Analytics in 21st Century America. John, happy Labor Day to you. Hey, good morning, Royal. How are you? And you too. Thank you so much, and appreciate you sharing uh, part of the holiday with us. Um, I, you had an interesting uh, piece recently about the Arizona and Florida primaries, asking, uh, is the insurgency over? And uh, kind of an intriguing question. I mean, people who have observed this, this rising anti-establishment tide, I guess they might have been disappointed or surprised because they heard Rubio, he's doing okay, he wins, McCain, even Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Uh, what's your take on that phenomenon? Well, I, I think at least insofar as the congressional races are concerned, and even with some of these insurgents well-financed and getting a, a, you know, a considerable amount of attention, um, there, there just, at the very least, isn't the level of interest among the insurgents on that level as there is uh, in the presidential race. You couldn't help but notice that in really in, in every instance an establishment candidate won and won really big. Now, a lot of people talk about how the two candidates are, are the most hated, the, the, mm -hmm. the lowest approval ratings of any presidential candidates for major parties in history, and yet, oh my goodness, what a coincidence. They're together against each other in the same election. Does any does either side have an edge, you think, in making progress with the all-important independent vote? I mean, it's tempting to say, well, you know, is there anybody who hasn't already irrevocably made up their mind since we've just been had this total immersion of publicity? But do you think any, either side has an advantage when it comes to reaching out to the independents? Uh, probably Trump, uh, but, but only slightly. Uh, he's, he's doing better. Uh, than Hillary Clinton among independents at this moment, but there's so many independents uh, that that are undecided or are very weak in their support, and so it really starts out uh, uh, as as we see from the polls a very close race, and a lot of that has to do with with independents, as you point out, no real edge from from either candidate, and millennials, you know, over forty percent of whom are are uh, non-white, and there's an article in the New York Times today where uh, uh, African-American millennials are saying they, they definitely won't vote for Trump, but they just simply don't trust Hillary Clinton. So that's where we're at right now. This, you know, objectively speaking, historically, traditionally, the Democrat has a, a huge advantage going into November, except that Hillary Clinton doesn't have that advantage. Well, and we're talking with John Zogby, CEO of Zogby Analytics. Is that advantage counterbalanced at all by the phenomenon that the American public almost never likes to, to give the reins of power to the same party three times in a row? I, I think in, in the last 50, 60, 70 years, only George Bush following Ronald Reagan. It was the only time when the, the American public said, yeah, we're going to go for three terms for one president, uh, one party, as opposed to two. And yet that's what Hillary is bucking. So much more complicated than that. Uh, a poll that just came out a little over a week ago by PPP, that's a Democratic polling firm, showed Hillary leading by two, but showed that, that if Barack Obama could run, 
against Donald Trump, he'd be ahead by 14. Wow. And so it's, it's that complicated. Uh, the president's numbers are higher than they've been. They're over 50%. And yet 27, 30% think the country is headed in the right direction. So the problem there is almost the same as it is with the two candidates, that uh, America does not like the direction it's going into. It doesn't like uh, the Democrats. It likes the Republicans even less. It doesn't like either of the presidential candidates. And yet, the incumbent, who is supposed to be very unpopular, is at that moment in time where he's not so unpopular. That's fascinating to it me that, that, that in particular, the president would, would do so well, would pull so well. How would you explain that? I mean, to me, the lame recovery, you know, people really aren't jazzed about that. Obamacare, either you hate it, or if you're on the left, you don't really like it because you want single payer or socialized medicine. Is it that people sort of secretly like his sort of isolationism, no boots on the ground? You know, we don't like the idea of an apology tour, and yet, you know, Americans aren't dying in combat. I mean, is it just a combination of those factors that have buoyed his numbers? I think so. I think there's a sense that the, uh, the GOP, uh, as has happened uh, going back to the 1990s, kind of overplays its hand um, with the perception of obstructionism. It's one thing to have gridlock. Voters seem to like gridlock, but they also like to seem to get things done. Uh, and, you know, government shutdowns, uh, 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 no approval of a nominee for the Supreme Court, uh, just what appears to be obstructionism for the sake of obstructionism um, uh, just does not work for, for the GOP, period. It works among conservatives, but then, as you see, not among all conservatives um, as well. GOP is at a, a real either moment of truth right now or is so hopelessly fractured that it's hard to see it even emerging uh, as a united national party after this election. We're chatting with uh, John Zogby. John, we get the sense that Trump is driving the train. Occasionally the moderate voices will have an influence, but basically he does what he wants and goes back to his instincts even after he's allowed himself to be nudged in a more moderate direction. What about Hillary? Uh, Is it your sense that she's her own woman, uh, she's driving the train, or is she kind of following a campaign manager's playbook? She's following a playbook. You know, do no harm, and yet the news does her plenty of harm. And it also doesn't work for her. There's a, a sense of entitlement. She certainly had that, if you'll recall, in 2007, early 2008. It didn't play well uh, with, with voters. And so, you know, it, it, it's like the college basketball before the 30-second the clock. You know, just, just uh, hold on to the ball and, and <laughs> run out the clock. And yet, uh, she's not really moving forward. You know, the, some of the polls, in fact, are misleading. They do a two, two-way race, you know, instead of a four-way race. Uh, look only at the four-way race, and that's where you see, you know, 15, 18, sometimes almost 20 percent 
voting for third-party candidates, and that's hurting her a whole lot more than it's hurting Trump. And I noticed that. I noticed that whereas she might be up by five or six, uh, mano a mano, then you add the two third parties in there and it shrinks to that. Why is it that uh, it hurts her more than Trump? You would think that a lot of libertarians, and he gets more votes than the Green Party, you'd think a lot of libertarians would sort of be natural allies with Republicans, and yet uh, he seems to benefit from the presence of the third parties. But he's not a natural Republican in any way, shape, or form. He's a him. Mm -hmm. He's Donald Trump, um, not a Republican. And frankly, if he wins... This would not be a GOP victory by any measure. It would be a Donald Trump victory. He sucks all the oxygen out of everything that's close to him. And, and it, boy, this, this defies so much uh, rationality. But, you know, 50, 60, 100 prominent Republicans you know, will sign letters or announce, I'm not going to vote for Donald Trump, and that feeds an anti-establishment candidacy. That's precisely what somebody like a Donald Trump needs. As soon as establishment people start coming out for him, he's no longer that edgy Donald Trump anymore. Right. We're talking with John Zogby of uh, Zogby Analytics. John, you talked about Hillary running out the clock. Is there any risk to her essentially avoiding these full-blown press conferences where she might have to you know, mix it up with hostile questioners? Or can she just sit on her lead and figure, well, you know, that's inside baseball. People aren't going to really hold that against her. And by avoiding the press conference, she avoids the risk of a gaffe, a, a terrible answer. It's a huge risk for her because I think like everybody else, you know, WikiLeaks is now in this game. Um, and the email uh, controversy now has shifted from process to content. And the content of uh, a, a lot of those emails will be released strategically, you know, around mid to the latter part of October. And if she hasn't built up her likability sufficiently, this content could be devastating. But right at a time when, you know, she needs to be picking up in the polls and putting this race away, all the questions about trust, uh, whatever stink may be uh, involved regarding the uh, the Clinton foundation, um, relationships with, with people, big money donors, all the edge that she's supposed to have could be dissipated. It's amazing when you think about how this was such a self-inflicted wound that she, uh, mm -hmm. that she caused in terms of the email. I mean, you take that out of the mix, and she's probably, this is a runaway against Donald Trump, and yet... You know, why in the world didn't somebody, even if she's not a techie or whatever, why didn't somebody sit down with her and say, you know what, this this has a, a, re a really potential for blowing up. And you got all this stuff with the Clinton Foundation. You know, have a firewall between, you know, your communications, dealing with the Clinton Foundation, et cetera, so it doesn't get mixed up. I mean, it just seems like a really stupid mistake on her part. Stupid, and yet it reveals something deeper, and that is, that goes back in 1992 when Bill said, hey, you get two for the price of one, and immediately this became a husband and wife drama and, uh, and a, a, a putative dynasty. And so the sense is, hey, look, uh, everybody knows I'm going to win this election. Let's get all this nonsense over with, you know. Uh, ha, 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 when the press asks her questions or demands news conferences, I don't have to do these sorts of things because you know I'm going to win. And I don't think voters like that. 
It's kind of like why she's polling 41, 42% right now. It's kind of like the line about six months ago when she was putting up with all these questions about the emails, and and the guy says, look, I'm going to ask it again. Did you wipe the server? Do you mean like with a cloth? Yeah. (laughs) So I I guess, you you know, that may may be the sense of it. All right, John Zogby, CEO of Zogby Analytics, thank you so much for... uh, Sharing your thoughts on this intriguing issue, I guess we'll uh, we'll have an answer in about six, seven weeks. <laughs> yes, we will. All right. Thanks for I your think. help. <laughs> Take care. Yeah, 7.19 at the time, Talk Radio 790 KABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. Hey, we have a giveaway, Rob Marinko. Now, you're not eligible. But oh, I bet you're going to want to be eligible when you hear what we're giving away. Because uh, we want the fourth caller right now to be a winner at 1-800-222-5222 and win a pair of tickets to see Yousef, a.k.a. Cat Stevens, at the Pantages Theater on October 6th. Yes, he did change his name, and we got to keep that straight. Uh, former, the artist formerly, formerly known as Cat Stevens. Tickets are furnished by Live Nation Entertainment. Call 1-800-222-KABC now and win. So uh, I think the the surprise uh, editorial op-ed piece of the week, Rob Marinko, was uh, Pamela Anderson coming out against pornography. (laughs) And she did used to be a Playboy model. And, of course, we all enjoyed her frolicking on Baywatch. Yeah, Uh, but she did do a couple, you know, sex tapes. and There's that, too, yeah, but she's turning her back on all that. Well, she was in the... Never mind. <laughs> the whole Anthony Weiner thing is is inspired people yeah. to think about pornography. And so what happened is uh, a rabbi, Shmuley Botich, and Pamela Anderson uh, wrote an, a piece for the Wall Street Journal uh, this week. And they, they said, you know, if anybody still had doubts about the addictive dangers of pornography, Anthony Weiner should have put them uh, uh, to rest with his repeated self-sabotaging sexting. And it, it is, I mean, talk about... Uh, uh, a fatal, self-destructive thing. I mean, especially, okay, so he's got this compulsion that's so bad that even though he's a public person, he does it and he gets caught a time or two. I mean, it went on and on to the point where I guess that's why uh, Huma Abedin finally called it quits and said, called it quits. You know, cut, uh, cut the wiener off, yeah. Yes, you could put it that way. For, they, they say in their article, from our respective positions of rabbi counselor and former Playboy model and actress, not a typical combo, right. uh, we've often warned about pornography's corrosive effect on the man's soul, uh, on a man's soul and his ability to function as a husband and by extension as father. It's a public hazard of unprecedented seriousness given how freely available, anonymously accessible, and easily disseminated pornography is nowadays. And uh, give the woman a hand. Well, they talk about the American Psychological Association saying that pornography consumption rates are between 50 and 99% among men. That's surprising. <laughs> 99% is, is awfully high. That's yeah, pretty 50% close. is awfully low. It's pretty close to unanimous, though, by my count, 99%. <laughs> Okay, so that's the number, 50 to 99% for men. Would you like to guess what the range is for women who, who uh, tend to, to consume pornography? Well, as I understand that women are less uh, visually st- stimulated. Mm-hmm. No, they're just lying. Or they're lying. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to say it's uh, 30%. Well, you, that's right, 30. And so what's the high number? Uh, the guys are 50 to 99%. Women are 32. What would you guess? 50. 86. <laughs> 86. 86. A 86%. lot of women just don't admit it, but they're all, everyone's doing it nowadays. It's on your phone. 
watching it right now. That's what I understand. So the now men report less satisfactory intimate lives with their wives or girlfriends as a result of the consumption of pornography. By contrast, many female fans of porn tend to prefer a less explicit variety. This is the uh, Marinko theory. And report that it improves their sexual relationships. It says 9% of porn users have tried unsuccessfully to stop. Uh, an indication of addiction that's all the more startling, according to Pamela Anderson. How hard were they trying to stop? I don't know. When you consider the dependency rate among people who try marijuana is the same, 9%, and not much higher among those who try cocaine, 15% who, who try actually stop. So they say it's a fair guess that whereas drug dependency data are mostly stable, the incidence of porn addiction will only spiral as the children now being raised in an environment of wall-to-wall -wall digitized sexual images become adults inured to intimacy and in need of even greater graphic stimulation. They are the crack babies of porn. So I didn't know she was such a good writer, you know? I did not, I did not realize that was their... Uh, the, uh, you're talking about men who believe that cruising the Internet for explicit footage of other women or sharing such images of themselves over the remote communication. That's the weirdest yeah. thing. I don't get that oh at all. Oh, my gosh. Uh, this guy, Wiener, is just off the charts weird. Uh, offered That's by smartphones. He's into. he's into pictures of himself. Unfortunately. Offered by smartphones are risque but risk free distractions from the tedium of life. Well, we're getting pretty heavy here, but that's what you get when you when you talk to Pamela Anderson. Seven forty talk radio seven ninety K A B C Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Happy Labor Day to you all. Hey, start your day off right. Mornings at five with McIntyre in the morning. Doug and T-Ray cover the day's top stories and stuff you'll want to know with context and a laugh. And for really early risers, catch the NBC4 News at 4.30, right before Doug and T-Ray at 5, making it a little easier to get up and head to work. Mornings on 790 KABC. Amy Trask is the former chief executive officer of the Oakland Raiders. She is currently an analyst on CBS Sports and CBS Sports Network, and she's the author of a brand-new book, you negotiate like a girl, reflections on a career in the National Football League. Amy, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Full disclosure, Amy, you and I used to work together at a law firm handling intriguing corporate law issues. Now, tell the truth, Amy, if you'd stayed with the firm drafting corporate bylaws night and day, you'd have had a much more exciting career, don't you think? I'm just sort of proud I lasted at that a whole year. Um, <laughs> Well, we were sorry to see you go, but now, so here's the deal. You get a spot with the Raiders after the team moved from Oakland to Los Angeles, and you work your way up to the position of chief executive. So how were you able to accomplish this in a field that people absolutely associate with guys running the show? Well, I never had a plan to do that. Uh, I never had a strategy to do that. I never focused on what would be next. And frankly, I have a bit of an aversion, um, maybe saying a bit is an understatement, to people who take jobs looking immediately for what that next step will be. You know what? I had the opportunity of a lifetime to be part of a National Football League team, the team I loved, and I was thrilled to just be there. And I worked very, very hard. And I had the good fortune of working for a man, and I know there will be people listening to this show that love the Raiders and Al Davis and people listening who despise Al right. Davis and the Raiders. 
but even those people with whom I've interacted who really despised the Raiders and did not like Al Davis acknowledge that this was a man who hired without regard to gender, race, ethnicity, religion, all of those characteristics that have no bearing whatsoever on whether someone can do a job. We're talking with Amy Trask. She's author of You Negotiate Like a Girl, Reflections on a Career in the NFL. So you say that you never walked into a setting like a league owner's uh, a meeting or a business meeting uh, thinking about your gender. You weren't going to let it uh, you know, waste your time. Do you think your attitude influenced the way people responded to you? It may well have. Uh, it, Royal, it, just, it seemed nutty to me that someone that I should walk into a meeting, an owner's meeting, a negotiation, a player personnel meeting, thinking about my gender if I didn't want others thinking about my gender. Or, or stated differently, if I don't want you to be thinking about my gender, it's really silly for me to be thinking about my gender. And by the way, if you're bothered by it, go ahead, be bothered, waste your time and energy being bothered. I'm not wasting any of mine thinking about my gender or thinking about whether you're bothered. Now, in your book, you talk about uh, Al Davis's negotiation style. About he saw it as a challenge. He micromanaged. He would yell. And I, I couldn't help but think maybe there's an analogy with another famous person uh, on the scene now. I, do, do you see any parallels between Al Davis and Donald Trump? No. None. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, none. Because... And I don't want to steer your show into something that you are so very, very adept at, which is a discussion of politics, um, because that's for you to handle with the masters and the experts. And I heard you earlier on the show, and it was fascinating listening to that discussion. Thanks. Um, Al and I argued, and we disagreed, and we, we fought, and we argued, but he was always willing to let me do that. And that's perhaps the biggest, biggest misconception about Al was that he wouldn't harbor disagreement. I never hesitated to disagree with him. We would have good, healthy, strong arguments about it. And then ultimately I recognized he was the owner and he was going to do as he wished. We're talking with Amy Trask, former Raiders CEO, author of You Negotiate Like a Girl, Just Out, tremendous book. So you talk about swearing in the book a little bit. You use some language in the book uh, maybe that you couldn't actually use here on the radio. And I think you quoted Alice saying, well, I swear at Amy, but I don't consider her a woman. So what was that all about? Well, that was... Um one of the, the very, very, very special moments of my career. And I did, Royal, I did. I put a disclaimer at the beginning of the book. Um, the, the publisher didn't think it was necessary because, of course, it's a book about a career in the NFL, and locker room language is locker room language. And you're right, I won't use it on the radio lest the station get oh, in trouble. Oh, we've, we've got a little button, you know. I was going to say, I hope someone's good on that dump, that, that, that delay button. Um, but we were, we were in a meeting, and um, Al walked in, and he was being very, very gracious with all of the business guests, one of whom was a woman, and he went on to explain that he would never, he tries not to swear in front of women, and I'm looking at him like he's nuts. And then he says, and I would never swear at a woman. And at that point, my pen flew out of my hand, and I'm looking at him with just, I'm incredulous. And he said, oh, I swear at Amy but I don't consider her a woman. <laughs> and isn't that what we want? Don't we all want to do our job without regard to any of those differences, which, as I noted, um, have no bearing on whether we can do our job? And, you know, I did comport myself without regard to gender. I didn't think about my gender. 
and it was just phenomenal to, to know that neither did Al. You can see Amy Trask on CBS Sports and CBS Sports Network this uh, coming NFL season, and you can read her book, You Negoti- Negotiate Like a Girl, Reflections on a Career in the National Football League. Thank you so much for sharing part of your Labor Day with us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a conversation I always enjoy um, with you, Royal. And now, guess what? You're on a radio show in a city that now has football back. So thanks for having me. It's pretty exciting. Talk to you later, Amy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 7.47 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. Bill Thomas, how are things looking on the roads? Is McIntyre in the morning with Doug McIntyre? And Terry Ray Elmer. Eight oh seven, the time. Talk radio seven ninety K A B C. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Happy Labor Day to you all. So, Ramarinka, do we have to pay royalties to the Folgers people? You know, How's the, that? The best part of waking up. Uh, Folgers in your cup, and then yes. Randy changed it a little bit to stick Doug's <laughs> name in there. But do the Folgers people do they put up with that That's, kind of thing? Good point. I mean, Paul Anka wrote the Tonight Show theme. Uh-huh. I remember reading, and every week he got a check in the mail. Probably wasn't a huge check, but every time Johnny would play the Tonight Show theme, well, hmm. I don't know, Mrs. Olson. Could be showing up knocking on the door here at KBC. If they want royalties from us, they're going to get about. Uh, half of a penny. <laughs> well, okay. All right, We're so, not making any money. So you probably won't be uh, seeing Mrs. Olson. Hey, live, uncensored, uninhibited, KBC presents the Dr. Drew and Mike Catherwood live podcast, a live show at the Ice House in Pasadena. It happens Thursday night, September 8th. Get your tickets at kbc.com. The first Dr. Drew and Mike live podcast show was wild, so make plans to be at the Ice House on Thursday the 8th. More fun from 790-K-A-B-C. So, gosh, Rob, if people were rooting for Mike uh, Chris Brown uh, to go to jail because of this whole uh, gun-waving thing, I don't think it's going to happen. No? No, I think uh, his accuser is turning out to be kind of a flake. Plus, he's got Mark Garagos on his side. So <laughs> how can he lose? So Bailey Curran is the lady who was at Chris Brown's house this uh, this past week. And uh, you know the story. She 3.11 in the a.m., after a, a failed business meeting. She yeah, well, there. that's when you have business meetings. Yeah, well, she was discussing so some shocked, undisclosed what? project with Chris Brown, and he's waving a gun at her, apparently because she admired the diamond necklace some guy had, and, and that, that set Chris off. Chris Brown was kicked out of rehab because of anger management issues. <laughs> And I think it was it was rehab for anger management. It's he's just a very well. Remember that time Rihanna kept uh, hitting him in the fist with her face. Yeah, was there was that two thousand nine five years probation. He finally got uh, rid of the probation deal. Anyway, this accuser, she was stripped of her Miss California Regional two thousand sixteen oh. crown. So that shows you know there's a little stripped flake her of in her this. crown. And the problem is the pageant people won't tell us what caused her. They say it was contractual disputes. But anyway, the scepter's got to come back, and the tiara, and the <laughs> crown, and the whole thing. And this is the woman who'd said, what, me make a story up about Chris Brown for publicity? I don't need publicity. Yeah. I'm Miss Regional California. <laughs> she actually said that. So also, she was accused of shoplifting back in New York, and so Garagos is going nuts on Not this. Not a little bad girl. That makes her even more interesting. I, I guess so. Without uh, a scepter, though, she's not... <laughs> 
Well, she's really that she's bad. in the news. Is the point? Right. She, so she's she's going to be. Uh, I don't think the allegations against Chris Brown are going to go no. anywhere. So uh, we've been talking a lot this morning about Donald Trump. And by the way, this hour, huge hour, we've got Jim Murray, chief correspondent with Inside Edition, coming up shortly, talking about Ryan Lochte. And later in the hour, we've got uh, an author, Michael Leahy. Uh, if you are a ball fan, Dodger baseball, he's got a, uh, a book out called The Last Innocence, The Collision of the Turbulent 60s and the Los Angeles Dodgers. I, I really want to get his take on uh, on the sad, uh, you know, the, the fact that we're going through Vin Scully's last month. No kidding. So, yeah, so huge, uh, huge hour here on K. ABC. But Donald Trump, the news is, um, Rob Marinko, he's ahead. He is ahead of Hillary Clinton, according to okay. the Rasmussen poll. It's not exactly right. you know, a fly-by-night operation. No. So what it is is 40% for Trump, 39% for Hillary. And th- this is when you factor in the two uh, third-party folks. Johnson, the Libertarian, gets seven. And Stein, Jill Stein, the the Green Party candidate gets 3%. So her post-convention bump has kind of disappeared, and I think the consensus is she just keeps getting dragged down by the email scandal, and it's not that everybody is all of a sudden falling in love with Donald Trump. Uh, Trump has the backing of now of um, 71% of Republicans. Clinton has 73% of Democrats. That's down from 79% in the previous survey. So she's Quite losing. What a drop. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's like a 5%. Uh, Trump attracts 15% of Democrats. Uh, 12% of Republicans prefer Clinton. So, um, you know, Trump holds a 44 to 37% lead among men. And Hillary holds a similar 41 to 36 percent advantage among women. So it's, it's close. You know, when they look at the electoral map, maybe you know, the, who cares if he's got a little edge on the popular because perhaps the Democrats are, are leading in the swing states. I think the conventional wisdom is that Trump would have to almost run the table, maybe seven of eight key swing states. And what are the chances? I mean, if each one is a flip of the coin, you're not going to flip the coin seven times and and come up Trump every time. I don't know. I think Hillary could pull it off. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll we'll see. Now, the third-party presidential candidates, it's funny, um, they're probably not going to be in the debates because I think they have to have 15%. 15%, And there's no way. They're not close to it. And, yeah, it's a bummer. But get this, seven 76% of the public wants them in the debates. So I would think, you know, maybe the debate people will say, well, you know, the public's... uh, I don't understand that figure. 76% of people want them in debates, but 76% of them don't want to vote for either of those two. More than that. you got less than 5% on each of these candidates. It's the entertainment factor. The entertainment factor is Trump versus Hillary. I don't care what Jill Stein has to say. She's not going to rile things up. We had her on this show. She's boring you want a cage fight between hillary and donald don't that's you? the only reason that we nominated these two is for the <laughs> debate ratings it, it will be great so the negative ratings that hillary and uh, donald have are 51 percent for clinton and 59 percent for trump these are records for presidential candidates in the modern era and they just happen to be running against each other i wonder if during the presidential debates will trump benefit from one of the moderators correcting Hillary on some of her BS, you know, like a la uh, Candy Crowley, for instance, when uh, Romney was debating. I'm sure that's going to happen. No problem. I'm sure it's going to happen. Well, you know, Chris Wallace of Fox News is pretty proud. They've been talking all week about it. This is the first time a Fox News uh, anchor has ever been a moderator of a general election debate. Mm -hmm. And and the thing is, he's going to feel so much pressure not to come across like some kind of homie for the Republicans. Yeah. Although Fox can hardly be be called a supporter of Trump 
unlike some of the other networks, uh, it's hard to make an argument that they're not supporting Hillary. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Uh, it's uh, it, the debates are going to be tremendous. Uh, the, the Clinton is leading now. Let's see, uh, Clinton supporters. Oh, this is this is dramatic. Clinton supporters are convinced ninety four percent to one percent that she will win in November, but Trump supporters are not nearly as confident. They are predicting by fifty three percent to twenty five percent that he will win. So. You know they they don't have the confidence level that uh, that the Hillary well, people well because have. they believe like Trump has said many times the system's rigged against them and there's some reason behind that and that that uh, Hillary and her folks uh, it came out that they rigged the primaries against uh, Bernie Sanders so it's you know there's some validity to, to that I think that thought. It is 8.15 here on Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. And as promised, uh, we're going to shift gears and uh, we're going to be joined by our friend Jim Moray. He's chief correspondent for Inside Edition. Jim, happy Labor Day to you. Same to you, Royal. I think you should run for president. I'll be your running mate. And I lay you odds we have less of a negative reaction than these two candidates. You know, Jim, the thing is, if you look at my birth certificate, it says Kenya, and that that, that doesn't work out. That's already been tried, apparently. Also, also it's your stage name of Royal Oaks. <laughs> Nobody will believe it. You know, we were talking, Rob and I, earlier about an amazing statistic, speaking of unusual names, Alice Cooper. He has run for president every single year, officially. He's paid his fee and so on since 1972. And, I didn't even realize that. I don't know how big an Alice Cooper fan you are. A big Alice Cooper. Actually, I read that your real name was Alice Cooper, and you changed <laughs> it to Royal Oak. I love Alice Cooper. He's actually a very nice guy. I've met him. I've talked to him. He's, he, you would never believe that the guy you're talking to is the same guy in that makeup and, you know, School's out for summer. I mean, right. it's just hysterical. He's a very decent man. Oh, that's that's good to hear. Well, maybe it'll it'll catch on. Maybe people will vote for him this time around. Hi, Rob. By the way, hi. Hey, Jim. So, Jim Murray, <laughs> chief correspondent for Inside Edition. You have been busy talking about uh, some fascinating stories. I know on Inside Edition, one of the things uh, you guys have been reporting on is uh, the Ryan Lochte uh, problem. I mean. I, he was able to bounce back pretty quickly, don't you think, Jim? I mean, you know, you lost what was a Ralph Lauren and Nike and so on as quite a one-two punch, but now he's going to be on Dancing with the Stars. Uh, you know, I actually tweeted about this. I'm very disappointed, very upset. Maybe it means I'm getting old, okay, because I've got kids, <laughs> and I, you're laughing because I know you feel the same way. It's just so upsetting. We are, we are not only rewarding bad behavior, we're celebrating it. And people want to watch. Look, I'm all for this guy redeeming himself. I really am. I don't think that he should pay a price forever. But, he, you know, even the apology was weak. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, it really was. I mean, I thought his, uh, the, the negative reaction against him, just especially since it was so sensitive for the whole nation of Brazil. I mean, they really were on the defensive about the crime problem because everybody was telling stories about, oh, you take a right, wrong turn at, uh, in downtown Rio and you're going to be dead within three minutes. That was the image, and he just fed into it. But, you know, in a way, Jim, it actually maybe helped Brazil because now the Brazilians, when people talk about crime, they can roll their eyes and say, oh, yeah, that's the Ryan Lochte uh, myth. But, I mean, yeah, he just made stuff up. But he hurt America. Don't forget he was representing our country. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really I think you have to take that seriously. It's a huge honor. And, and these athletes worked 
their entire lives to be there. But they are representing our country and, and, and really gave Americans a, a black eye. I mean, people say, oh, you, you don't think Americans are ugly? Look at this guy. He's, per, he's proof. He's a perfect example of what we hate about America. Yeah. We are talking with Jim Murray, chief correspondent for Inside Edition, and he is the author of The Last Day of My Life. And, you know, we've we got to pitch your book because we just had Amy Trask on, and we, we pitched her book. I don't know if you bumped into Amy, but she is a, a, a fascinating person. She was Al Davis's CEO for about 20 years at the Raiders, and now she's on uh, CBS Sports, and she's got a new book out, uh, You Negotiate Like a Girl. Um, but, I do. Yeah, so I think people should go out and buy You Negotiate Like a Girl and The Last Day of My Life, and, and Jim and Amy can both be happy. So, Jim, what about uh, switching over to the Stanford rapist guy? I yeah. mean, talk about an amazing story. What, what was this judge thinking? Did he not realize that the whole planet is going to come down on him like a ton of bricks when this, this kid gets convicted and, you know, the normal process would be multiple years behind bars and he gives him essentially nothing? Well, you know, look, it's difficult for judges. And, and I, yes, my, I mean, my gut reaction was, what? You know, look, I've got two daughters. And I, I don't even think you don't need, even need to be a parent to look at this case and think this is, is wrong, feels wrong. Three months, this girl was, was knocked out. She was behind a, a dumpster. I mean, come on. It was it, it, every, every new bit of information made the case more reprehensible, more disgusting. And I don't really think the judge, I don't know that he had enough information. I think he was misled by the defense, uh, by their positioning of who this kid was, this Brock Turner, uh, what kind of kid he was, what his history was, what his drug use history was. And, and you know, and perhaps, perhaps he felt sorry for him in some way that, that seems incomprehensible to us. I don't know. Uh, it, it, you know, the judge is obviously going to pay the price for this decision. Good. But, uh, but I feel horrible for the victim. You know, w when, you when you look at what happened to her and look at his sentence, I mean, some people with misdemeanors get, serve more time. Oh, Jim, absolutely. Jim, one of the witnesses, and this is why I can't, I, I just can't give the judge any kind of a break on, on this nutty decision. One of the witnesses, young men that came along and actually stopped the rapist, uh, at some point during the attack, said that when he found out what happened to the girl or realized what happened, he became physically ill to yep. the point of, of vomiting. And yep. how could you listen to that? And then at some point the judge talked about this, this, the rapist's uh, records in the pool and what a great swimmer he was. I mean, how, how can you do that and expect not to take heat? I don't know. I think that the, uh, our society places too much emphasis on the uh, accomplishments of athletes and, and, and wanting them to achieve their potential. Oh. And all. You know, let's be serious. You know, you, you know Brock, Brock Turner's dad said that he felt horrible. His son was, was being penalized for 20 minutes of action. Oh, you know, boy. And, 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 yeah, you know what? It was 20 minutes of oh. action, and it was the worst decision this kid made in his life. But look what it did to this woman. Look what message it sent to other men, to other victims. Who's going to come forward now thinking, wait a minute, I'm going to endure this? Great point. Heat? 
and 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 this this guy's going to get three months. Give me a break. So yeah, I agree with you. I think the judge made a horrible decision. I really do. I guess the it's, advice it's disgusting. The advice to this guy, the young guy, is to lay low because people are not going to forget what happened. And if he doesn't keep his nose clean, as we saw with the O.J. Simpson case, you know, if the legal system gets a do-over, somebody is going to throw the book at him big time. So well, he, you know, he's convicted of three felonies. Mm-hmm. Three felonies. You know, it's assault with intent to commit rape of an intoxicated person, right? Sexually penetrating an intoxicated person with a foreign object, and then sexually penetrating an unconscious person. She wasn't just intoxicated. She was out cold. So, uh, you, you know, he's back home in Ohio. He has to serve three years probation. He has to register for life as a sex offender. There are protesters outside the house right now uh, or all weekend, and, and, and Brock's parents had called police uh, asking for protection because they're concerned about the safety of their son and their family. You, you know, I mean, th- th- this kid is going to serve a lifetime of misery, and perhaps he deserves that. But, but I think that the, the decision to let him serve three months in jail for what he did is, is horrific. Amazing story. We're talking with Jim Murray, chief correspondent for Inside Edition. And another amazing story is the, the, the big quarterback deal, Kaepernick. I mean, the story really touched a nerve, refusing to stand for the national anthem. I mean, it was just an overnight national debate, free speech, you know, versus issues of racism and black lives matter. Do you think that he thought it through and realized what kind of a firestorm he might be creating? I think he, I think he did. I think he, he I, you can't tell me he's surprised that this is creating a firestorm. But look who spoke out today at the G20, uh, the G20 summit. Uh, President Obama mm-hmm. uh, basically said, you know, he's he, he's generating more conversation. He's exercising his constitutional rights. He he didn't come out and say I support him, but it was implicit, I think, in what he was saying that that he was sympathetic to this uh, quarterback's position, which I thought was kind of pro- amazing. You have a World Cup winner, a U.S. soccer star Megan Rapinoe, who 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 uh, was on one knee during the national anthem, basically supporting him. What I thought was interesting was was one of the ex-wives of Muhammad Ali, who was married to him in the 60s during the, his turmoil with uh, his decision to avoid the draft, not to serve, to not to sell, uh, not to uh, to fight in Vietnam, and that cost Muhammad Ali a great deal—three years of boxing and a potential jail sentence. She, the the, the widow thought that, that this, this guy should get off his high horse and apologize, and he's taking the wrong approach, which I, I, I really didn't understand that. Yeah, I didn't get that. that. That is strange. Hey, Jim Murray, Chief Correspondent, Inside Edition, thank you so much for sharing part of your holiday with us. You have a great day. My pleasure. Next time we have to talk at least about one happy story. <laughs> it's a deal. <laughs> we'll make up for this. Take care. 824 The Time. Talk Radio 790-KABC. Royal in for Doug. Bill Thomas, how are things looking on the freeways? 839 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC, Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre this Labor Day. So it is baseball season. We're getting into the uh, frenzy of the postseason. So we thought it'd be fun to uh, check in with a gentleman who has written uh, an amazing book. His name is Michael Leahy. He has written The Last Innocence, The Collision of the Turbulent 60s, and The Los Angeles Dodgers. And I have to say, the book is, is remarkable. Uh, baseball fans are going to love it. People who are into you know, the intersection of sports and social issues will love it. But if you live through the amazing Dodgers era of the 60s and 70s, you are definitely going to love this book. Uh, Michael Leahy, welcome to the program. Royal and Rob, thanks for having me. 
You are quite welcome. Before we get to, to your book, um, The Last Innocence, and the ballplayers you focus on, I, I just wanted to get your impressions of Vin Scully because we're all thinking about it here in, in Los Angeles. I mean, he's headed for his last few games. I, I guess they're going to put him on the TV, the last six here at home, three, and then three up in San Francisco. Uh, there's not going to be a dry eye in, in town. What were your impressions of, of Scully? Well, I, I grew up, Royal, listening to him, and... Um, uh, what a remarkable figure. Um, you know, he was really uh, nothing less than the most important Dodger uh, during the 1960s, as, uh, as important as Sandy Koufax and Maury Wills and Don Drysdale and others were. No Dodger carried was, was more critical to the success of the franchise than Vin Scully. I mean, he brought you out to the ballpark to see those games during an year when the games were not televised. These home games were not televised. I know, only when they went up to San Francisco. That's exactly right. And Walter O'Malley uh, 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 wanted uh, people who saw his team to buy a ticket to come to his ballpark, and uh, much of that depended on a play-by-play announcer who could lure fans to the ballpark. And Vince Scully was nothing less than the bard of the game. And Dodger Stadium was nothing less than kind of the globe theater of baseball. Yeah, and, no, absolutely. Uh, when we, and when we went to the ballpark, so many of us would bring transistor radios along with us because we did not want to miss uh, Scully's words. So... Um, we'll all miss him. And, and you and I had a similar experience, and I know in your book you talk about uh, Sandy Koufax's uh, perfect game, the, the fourth of his four straight uh, year no-hitters. Uh, I was at home, a little kid. I had a little reel-to-reel tape recorder. I, at, uh, just before the ninth inning, I whipped it out, and I recorded the ninth inning of Vince Scully, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I've got this incredible thing. And then a week later, I'm, I'm down at Wallach's Music City, you know, uh, Topanga Plaza. They're uh. selling the, the 45s of, of, of Vince <laughs> Scully. So, so much for me having a collector's item, but it was just a thrill to, to be able to be part of that. So you focus, uh, Michael Leahy, on a few of the Dodgers in the 60s. Maury Wills, the base-stealing champion, Wes Parker, who wasn't known so much for his hitting, but he was an amazing amazing defensive first baseman, and, of course, Sandy Koufax, the superstar pitchers. pitcher. How did their stories symbolize what was going on in baseball at the time? Well, you know, there is probably there uh, among the many uh, vignettes that, that examine that question, perhaps the most illustrious of, uh, of, of the era uh, and the conflicts and how these players supported one another uh, takes place in 1962. Uh, Maury, uh, Maury Wills was chasing Ty Cobb's single-season stolen base record, uh, a, a legendary major league record. And Maury Wills was the first African-American player to be uh, going after the record of a revered white legend, in this case, Ty Cobb. This was... 12 years before Henry Aaron would break uh, Babe Ruth's lifetime home run record. So Maury was really a trailblazer. Uh, in 1962, for some of the, your younger listeners uh, might find this uh, uh, stunning, but this was two years before the adoption of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So an 
a prestigious African-American athlete could find himself on the cover of Sports Illustrated magazine one week and be denied service in an American restaurant or bar or hotel the next. Uh, so Maury was, Maury was a trailblazer. He's chasing Ty Cobb's record, and predictably he begins receiving hate mail uh, from places around the country, from, from racists who do not want to see Cobb's record broken. It was the same time when Sandy Koufax was receiving hate mail of his own in the form of anti-Semitic letters. So these two close friends and teammates uh, who were absolutely devoted to one another struck upon a brilliant idea. Each would open the other's mail and sift out the hate mail. And that's what they did. And of course, predictably, being ball players, they would sort of kid each other during the process. Maury would say to Sandy, oh, you don't want to read this one. And Sandy would come back and say, Maury, you don't want to go near this letter. <laughs> wow. But they had each other's back, uh, protected each other. Maury went on that season to break Cobb's record by stealing 104 bases would be chosen the National League's most valuable player. A year later, Sandy would win 25 games, uh, be the National League's most valuable player and Cy Young a winner, uh, award winner, and lead the Dodgers to the World Series title by beating the Yankees twice in a four-game sweep and in the process be recognized as the, uh, the game's greatest pitcher. So it's, you know, I think that vignette stands out because it shows at once how supportive these men were uh, uh, of one another in a time when uh, the country was turned upside down by tumult. Uh, you had, this was an year when the civil rights movement was happening, the Vietnam War and a wave of political assassinations. Uh, and these close Dodgers were always there for each other. We're talking with Michael Leahy, author of The Last Innocence, The Collision of the Turbulent 60s and the Los Angeles Dodgers. We're going to pause briefly and uh, come back to Michael and uh, continue our conversation about the book. 846 The Time here on Talk Radio 790 KABC. Time for Bill Thomas and Traffic. Bill. Now you listen to me. It's Peter Tillman on the next Peter Tillman at 10. Of course, we'll discuss elections because, man, it's the kickoff after Labor Day. Talk about local politics and all the late-breaking news. All of that and more starting at 10 right here on Talk Radio 790 KBC. 49 at time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre on a Labor Day. We're talking with Michael Leahy, author of The Last Innocence, The Collision of the Turbulent 60s and the Los Angeles Dodgers. Michael, you really focus in the book on the stinginess of Walter O'Malley and the dishonesty of his henchman, General Manager Buzzy Bavese. Was blowback against these guys one of the things that led to reforms in the system of the rights of the baseball players? And, um, uh, and, and Royal, just to give your listeners some sense of the um, tight-fistedness and duplicity at work in that era, we were talking about uh, Sandy Koufax earlier and his great 1963 season in which he won 25 games and led the uh, helped lead the Dodgers to the World Series title. In the aftermath of that, before the 1964 season, Koufax was hoping for a substantial raise, and uh, a substantial raise uh, meant, if, 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 you're, if your listeners can believe this, 
$70,000. No Dodger to that point in history had been paid as much as $100,000. Koufax was uh, in the end hoping for $70,000. Bavese was trying to hold firm Buzzy Bavese at 65000 And uh, Buzzy Bavese made the point to Koufax that uh, he wasn't as uh, interested in wins uh, Sandy's league-leading league 25 wins or ERA as he was in innings pitched. Uh, it, uh, it could not have been a more specious argument. Uh, in the end, Koufax uh, got $70,000, but he understood that if he failed to perform well in 1964, not only would he not get a raise, uh, but that uh, – his salary might be cut. So if you can believe this, uh, three times during the month of May in the 1964 season, Sandy Koufax pitched on only two days of rest. Amazing. And uh, if you want, uh, there was a May 24th appearance in 1964 where the Dodgers brought Sandy Koufax in on only two days of rest, uh, to, to pitch a three-inning relief stint. And uh, it's no accident that uh, uh, his career would be cut short and that two and a half years after that relief appearance in May of 1964, his career would be over at, uh, at the age of 30. Uh, part of the problem, Royal, was that contracts in that era were only one-year deals. So players and pitchers understood uh, that if they were going to get raises or hold on to the salary they were making, they had to perform. They had to play hurt. And, uh, I, you know, I look nowadays at the baseball landscape. You have in New York a, a pitcher named Bartolo Colon, who at age 43 is still pitching and pitching well. And we saw Randy Johnson, the great left-hander, pitch until he was 45. Well, Sandy Koufax's career ended at 30, and uh, I think these, you know, these one-year contracts certainly had something to do with that. Sandy, who was an absolute plow horse, an absolute selfless player, uh, pitched often uh, while hurting, and uh, that had that had an effect on uh, on the duration of his career. So nowadays, when we we hear about the good old days of the 1960s for players. They weren't often so good. And when we look at today, we look at a Bartolo Colon pitching at 43, that's not only good for, for, uh, for players, uh, but that's good for fans. It allows, it allows us to uh, uh, continue to watch these players who are marvels, uh, who are absolute marvels. With regard to... Koufax and Wills and these other players who found themselves dealing with a tight-fisted Walter O'Malley and Buzzy Bavese, those interactions, those difficulties with management really were the match that lit the fire uh, that led to the creation of the players' union and, uh, and more salary equity. Michael Leahy, author of The Last Innocence, The Collision of the Turbulent 60s and the Los Angeles Dodgers. Thank you so much for sharing part of your holiday, and I urge everybody to go out and buy this book. It is a, it is a terrific read, especially this time of year. Michael, thank you for the help.
Royal, thanks so much for having me. All right, take care. 855 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, the Crystal Burger crazy guy. Stay with us. And get smart. It's McIntyre in the morning with Doug McIntyre and Terry Ray Elmer. Six the time. Talk radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre this Labor Day. I hope you're having a great holiday. So Randy Wang keeps reporting on this crotch stomp. I, I, I didn't realize. Yeah, is, it takes is, that, some, is that a thing really in the NFL? a little twinkle in his eye. It's weird. I would think if that you know that could result in permanent injury, perhaps in no more generations of NFL players. Uh, well, you just be got to wear in a cup. I guess so. You got your steel-toed cup. Uh, pretty uh, pretty wild. <laughs> hey, um, start your day off right. Mornings at 5 with McIntyre in the morning. Doug and T-Ray cover the day's top stories and stuff you'll want to know with context and a laugh. And for really early risers, catch the NBC4 News at 4.30, right before Doug and T-Ray at 5, making it a little easier to get up and head to work. Mornings on 790. K-A-B-C. We are now joined by our friend Jim Roop. Jim has been uh, closely following the uh, Kaepernick uh, story, and it's really uh, it's gotten uh, it's taken on a life of its own. Uh, Jim, uh, what, what's the latest in terms of this uh, possible uh, police boycott of uh, 49ers games? Yeah, that uh, that's, has yet to be seen. The, the season begins uh, this coming weekend, but Kaepernick continues to dig himself in a hole. He did so uh, not just with what he has said and his behavior at games and in those uh, pig socks uh, he, he's been wearing at, at practices. Yeah, um, I mean, apparently his socks d- depict pigs in police uniforms. I mean, this yeah. is this is pretty harsh uh, for yeah. a guy in you know in the public eye, and it's, it's it's sort of jarring because his context, being a professional athlete, you don't think of them as usually coming out with really provocative uh, sort of uh, partisan viewpoints. It, and some of, that's one of the things that the police are upset with, and not only that, but the things that Colin Kaepernick has said about the police and how there's uh, a cosmetologist gets more training than a police officer does. And Yikes. so what, what uh, the Alameda, Alameda County Sheriff's Department and San Francisco Police, Santa Clara uh, County Police, uh, Santa Clara uh, Police Department, they've all invited Colin Kaepernick to their training facilities to see just how much training they do get. He's not um, he's not accepted that invitation, and he was—he dug himself in a little bit of a hole too with the African American community this weekend. He was invited to speak, and he committed to speaking at the Third Baptist Church in San Francisco. 164 years this church has been there, on the forefront of civil rights from the very beginning. And he was coming to speak, and the place was packed. Uh, teachers brought students from—I mean, there were parishioners and non-parishioners there. And then Colin Kaepernick backed out, and Reverend Amos. Brown, uh, about 30 minutes into the service, said he had every plan on being here, but the rigors of his training and preparing for the next game. Eh. We're talking Sunday morning here. Yeah, well, that's, me... that's nuts. You know, I'll, I'll tell you something else, uh, Jim. Here's the deal, and it's here's why it's tiring for so many people, this uh, this protest. The, the president chimed in from China this morning after the G20 summit, saying that, <laughs> you know, Kaepernick had the, the, the First Amendment right, you know, free... And it's that's not at issue, and I think it really uh, distracts people. And and the thing that Kaepernick, he's a, he's an immature young man, and uh, he should be allowed to make mistakes. That's all fine and good, 
But the deal is, they nobody ever talks about the second part of the First Amendment, and that's it applies to everybody. It just doesn't apply to the person that's uh, making a, a, you know controversial statements. It also applies to the critics, and, and, and they just don't. Kaepernick just doesn't seem to get that. I'm just glad that the president got through the important issues like nuclear proliferation, exactly. solved the problem of you cyber know. terrorism, so that he had time left over to talk about the quarterback <laughs> sounding that. off. Well, uh, Say, <laughs> Go ahead, Jim. <laughs> he did say that he wasn't following it very much. Was he <laughs> oh, no, not at all. You know, I, I, I have to play devil's advocate with you on something you said, Jim. Um, I, to to denigrate the training of cosmetologists, I mean, do you know when you're doing permanent eyeliner, you slip. I mean, that's why they call it permanent, Jim, okay? You never get that back. The cops, if they beat somebody up, they're probably going to be They'll fine heal. in a They'll week heal, or two. Sure. They will heal, yeah. So I'm not so sure about the cosmetology thing. Well, I apologize to cosmetologists. Listen to me. I, I apologize to cosmetologists all across America. And then you mean like Stephen Hawking? Oh, no, that's, no, that's cosmologist. No, that's I always get those two mixed up. And then Kaepernick comes out with the most ridiculous hairdo, and then he's uh, talking about cosmetologists. Uh, he's got the, he's got a little hey, It's confused. not as ridiculous as Obama's Iran um, a treaty uh, a negotiator. Oh, Remember that guy? Oh, oh, my gosh. Somebody forgot to get a haircut. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, and good in, point. The meantime, in the meantime, Kaepernick is being retained by the 49ers as the backup quarterback to Blaine Gabbard, but he... Uh, apparently to the 49ers and Chip Kelly, the head coach, uh, Kaepernick's ability to play the game uh, is more important than the distraction that this has caused. So, Jim Roop, we heard there was talk about the police union up in the Bay Area, Santa Clara Police Department, saying, well, we're not sure if we're going to be uh, showing up for security at the right. at the stadium if, they, if the team doesn't come down hard on this guy, because normally 70 officers volunteer to work, uh, paid as security ca- uh, personnel, but apparently that's going to be working itself out. Is that the word? Apparently, yeah. I mean, the uh, the police department in San Francisco Police Department too sent a letter, not just to or the police union, I should say, sent a letter to the NFL and the 49ers demanding that Kaepernick be um, disciplined, also demanding an apology. And unless Colin Kaepernick does uh, heal this relationship between himself and the police by the things he said and apologize for that. Because a lot of the things he said are not supported by facts. He's just ranting and raving about things for which about which he doesn't know. And so the police officer saying you gotta you, you gotta apologize for that. If they don't, then there is there is a real chance that the police will boycott patrolling the stadium. Uh, and so that could be that could really hamper security and cost the 49ers a lot of money and eventually the, the ticket holders. But uh, that's something that has to be worked out between the police department and the 49ers. If it's not, then it'll be a very interesting Sunday. What has, Jim, has, has Kaepernick said anything uh, indicating what would make him end his yeah. his boycott? And what, what has to happen? What? How perfect does the world have to become before he'll get off his butt and stand and respect us? The end to police brutality. Well, you know, that's just it's so stupid. It's so misguided. I mean, I don't want to get on a a thing here, but... He's protesting the flag of a country that is the least racist. And I mean, can somebody tap on the shoulder and say, "Come over here for a second. Why don't you protest what's going on in the inner cities? Why don't you talk about black on black crime? Why don't you talk about something that makes a difference as opposed to a a, a fraction of a percentage 
uh, of uh, incidents that happen in this country. Uh, country and uh, but, it, but you know, Rob Marenko, yes. if you look at the uh, latest news report, his jersey sales have jumped. He's the number five jersey in buy the NFL one. now. I'll buy one and set it on fire. Why not? Well, I'll well, buy one. The thing what is, what the heck? I, the, I don't think people are buying it um, to no. burn him up, although I saw that on TV. Yeah. I, this, you know, a lot of people at first thought, oh, my gosh, you know, he's just uh, destroying his career and yeah, so on. He's firestorm. Uh, people are behind him. I mean, Jim Roop, uh, you remember within the last week uh, with this Chris Brown story hit, I mean, he was playing the politics card. He was saying, you know what, when I call out uh, because of a stalker or something to my place here in Tarzana, the cops saunter out in a week or two. And he's talking about Black Lives Matter. He thinks the deputy DA who's been pushing for a jail time for him on the Rihanna probation violation is racist and so on. Uh, it seems to be working for him. Maybe it's working for Kaepernick, too. Well, maybe. I don't know. But i, I got to tell you, Rob said something that I just want to come back to a little bit about what Colin Kaepernick is not doing. And he's gotten some criticism for this, too. And, and you hit on it this little bit, Rob, that he's not, he's not putting anything into action. He's sitting on the bench when the national anthem is played. And many, of, many critics, including those in the African-American community, are saying, why don't you come out into the community, get involved in the Black Lives Matter movement, put your face out here in the streets, exactly. put your money where your butt is, and do something with that. Take, take some money and help, help fund programs so we can take kids off the street, help fund um, uh, programs that we can help heal the relationship between the police and, and the African-American community instead of doing nothing rather than sit during the national anthem, which really has nothing to do with the situation of uh, perceived police brutality across the country. All right, Jim Roop, you're laboring right now, but you know this is Labor Day, so hopefully you can uh, get a little rest and relaxation uh, later on. Uh, is that in the cards? Well, I'll get plenty of rest when I'm dead. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Words to live by, sort of, uh, from Jim Roop. Cheer up, Jim. Yeah. Jeez, man. <laughs> He's a serious worker. Thank you, Jim. Enjoy your Labor Day. 916 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. You know, Rob Marinko, uh, the news is is really focusing on Hillary's emails. And this interesting little uh, sidebar story, she had 13 uh, mobile devices. And um, it turns out (sighs) that uh, her lawyers don't seem to be able to find any of the mobile devices that she was using while she was and why and why should they i mean anything that's going to why would your lawyer want to find something that will help incriminate your client you're a lawyer royal for god's sake to defend the lawyer yes the rest of the story says one of her aides justin cooper would take a hammer and destroy the blackberry so of course the lawyer's not going to be able to find the uh the, the device, it's been destroyed with a hammer. Or he would break them in half. What? Uh, what I, the I, heck I guess, is that supposed to do? I, see, I wouldn't be secure. If I broke a device in half, I'd worry that some fancy computer expert could just duct tape it together and, and get those megapixels fired up. I've never committed a crime that's so serious that I had to break something to <laughs> cover my tracks, okay? Well, that was apparently how she rolled. But it's uh, the, the other angle on Hillary that I thought was intriguing is the, she was, uh, I think you were reporting on it earlier, today that she was pretty excited oh our big plane you know i'm so excited that we've got this nice plane Mm -hmm. well she's got kind of a history uh, of this because uh hillary clinton when she was secretary of state would summon uh, a military plane uh because when she wanted to fly from new york to washington dc not exactly a a long trip because she thought that the commercial uh, shuttle was in her words burdensome 
And so what she did was she had her uh, aide, Huma Abedin, uh-huh. uh, figure out how to make sure that they could avoid that the shuttle, the, the commercial shuttle that runs every hour between New York and, and Washington, D.C. So an email, uh, an email that wasn't destroyed by a hammer, uh, by Hillary says, do you think we could get uh, a plane for Westchester flight back tonight? Uh, she says, it's going to rain all day. I still don't feel great. So the idea of playing a guessing game with the shuttle is really burdensome to me. What do you think? Could be any time that works for the Air Force, Hillary wrote. So, I mean, at least she's being flexible. She's not telling the general of the Air Force. Well, she's a woman of the people. Come on. (laughs) So an hour and 40 minutes later, Huma, after probably chatting with the wiener about making sure he was doing the right thing, says to Hillary, yes, of course, looking into it. Around what time do you think? And Hillary says, oh, six or seven, uh, you know, does that work? So Abedin quickly got the job done. She see emails back. Plan confirmed. It's the C-21, the little one that we've taken before. So it's not like it was a big one, you know, not like some sort of troop carrier. Um, we'll be at White Plains ready for 6 p.m. departure, she wrote. And at 5.15, 45 minutes before the departure time, Hillary had a change of plan. She, she emails to Huma. Will the plane wait if I can't get there before maybe oh, 8 Lord. o'clock? Aberdeen replies, yes, of course. <laughs> so the emails uh, highlight the perks of serving as the nation's top diplomat. It's also likely to draw a little criticism from those who don't believe the Air Force should be ferrying <laughs> around the country's politicians, with the exception, of course, of Air Force One. for And in those emails about... The, it, 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 does Amadin ever uh, call Hillary your highness? I'm curious if the, your highness is anywhere in those emails. I, I haven't, come, if it haven't wasn't. come across that, no. Uh, mm-hmm. On the campaign trail, the article points out, Clinton is using a private plane owned by a Wall Street banker and donor to get to the fundraisers you know, out to the West Coast where she was hanging out with Jimmy Buffett uh-huh. and Warren Buffett and Barbara Streisand. And, uh, you know, don't you think Bernie Sanders and his and his supporters, their heads are exploding when they hear about Wall Street bankers paying for for the private plane that ferries her around when, you know, poor Bernie probably was flying coach. Uh, I certainly hope so, you know, given his his approach. But, uh, you know, the, the, the problem is. Trump doesn't seem to be going up in the polls. I think he's kind of flatlined, but she's actually coming down. And that's why the Rasmussen poll that just came out the other day said Trump is up by one point, 40 to 39. And the rest of the points are distributed among, among, I think, Johnson got six or seven points and, and the Green Party. So according to that one poll, he's crept ahead. And there is the the secret Trump theory. His his uh, campaign manager, uh, Kellyanne Conway, uh, has told the press that Donald Trump is actually winning the election, but every poll is wrong because Trump voters, she says, are undercover. She says Donald Trump performs consistently better in online polling where a human being is not talking to another human being about what he or she so may do. Bradley in the effect, we call it here in Los Angeles. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Back in the 80s, you're right. right. We have the black L.A. mayor who's way up in the polls against the white attorney general, George, George Duke Majin, and everybody knew that Bradley was going to win, going to be our next California sure. governor, and he lost pretty clearly. And the political scientists said, it's the Bradley effect. People didn't want to come across to the pollsters like a racist, so they said, oh, yeah, I'm voting for Tom Bradley. And then they ended up voting for George Duke Majin. Well, that's what the Trump people are hoping for. 
But other than sort of the unquantified, unscientific speculation by Killian, Killian Conway, the new campaign manager for Trump, not exactly a, an objective source, I don't see any reports that suggests that you know people really believe this is a true phenomenon. I think that's what Trump is counting on, though. I think he's counting on a huge number of voters across the country who, frankly, don't spend a whole lot of time voting typically, mm-hmm. but feel like this time we got to get out there, we got to take it back. Combine that with very likely the lack of enthusiasm of a lot of voters on the left who probably were very jazzed about the revolutionary historic aspect of Obama becoming president. And now the bloom is off that. Hillary doesn't have nearly the appeal to to a lot of folks in this country uh, who are on the progressive side, especially when you've got some disgruntled uh, Bernie supporters. Uh, I think that's the only path, because other than that, I mean, the polls make it look like just an almost impossible task for Donald Trump to run the table and win, you know, seven out of seven or seven out of eight uh, 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 states that are swing states. Because when you because when you look at the electoral map uh, over the last six or seven elections, there are so many states, 20, 25 states that absolutely automatically go for the Democrats. Similarly, there are a bunch on the Republican side. But if you look at the ones that have gone the same side, six straight elections, what are the chances they're going to change in this election? But you remember as well as I do, Royal, not that many months ago we were looking at maps of the primary. Uh, what, what, what Donald Trump had to do to get th- those, whatever it was, the 213 or something, the uh, uh, votes for the uh, delegate votes, delegates. And, and those maps were were even more horrifying if you're if you're a Trump supporter there's no way That's he true. can get the nomination and so I think he's he's counting somewhat on that and, and you go back to the 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 argument about well you know she's no uh, Obama and this isn't an Obama phenomenon again that you had back in 08 you know one thing about Obama he had his critics but nobody called him a crook or dishonest there were other criticisms of right. him I think this is uh we could see some surprises yeah, here. Yeah, you're, next, you're, uh, you're right. It so. is very possible. You know what I think the key would be? I think uh, Trump's kids need to just put three Valiums in his cornflakes every morning. <laughs> really? No, he, he had goes, those Valiums in Mexico. He, he sounded like he, he was go, falling he'll asleep go, there. He'll go out on the campaign to, well, I just uh, I want everybody to vote for me because it's, uh, it's a real nice thing and I'm a nice guy. and. And that's all he has to say. Why are you resurrecting Jimmy Carter? Why are you doing that? I don't understand. Actually, that was Dean Martin. Was it Dean Martin? Yeah. <laughs> I told you, you know, you, I, I told you earlier when I, I, I couldn't do uh, an French Asian accent, accent so I did, uh, I couldn't do French, yeah. so I had to do an Irish accent. Very I just funny. need to go to accent school. <laughs> 9.25 the time. Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre and Bill Thomas in for himself on the highways. 37 the time, Talk Radio 790-KABC, Royal Oaks and for Doug McIntyre. Happy Labor Day to you all. Hey, would you like to win a pair of tickets to Beautiful, the Carol King musical? It's going to be at the Seagerstrom Center for the Arts in Costa Mesa. And we got a pair of tickets if you're the third caller right now to 1-800-222-5222. Tickets are furnished by the Seagerstrom Center for the Arts. Call 1-800-222-KABC and good luck. Uh, some interesting uh, Trump news here, but before we get to that, I, I, I'm not sure, uh, Rob Marinko, dog person, cat person? or Dog person. 
Well, but, you, you know, you, you probably have an open mind, I would think, because Los Angeles' first cat cafe is about to open. Ooh, that's horrible. Oh, no, no, no. It sounds great. It's called Car- uh, Crumbs and Whiskers. Oh. It's uh, L.A.'s first permanent cat cafe. Now, why would you say that sounded well, horrible? Nobody wants to eat cats. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, you take your pets there. Oh, yeah, you, oh you I got it. You hang out with them. Oh, oh, right. What well, a horrible that's, thought. That's yeah. a relief. So, so here's the deal. A pre-opening is coming up September 15 through 29. You know, all the fancy restaurants. Restaurants, you got a pre-opening. Mm-hmm. Celebrities like you could be there. The grand opening for the public, <laughs> September 30. Uh-huh. And so the deal is guests may go and play with the adorable, adoptable cats. Uh, you make a reservation. It's for 75 minutes to uh, hang out with the cats. It's going to cost you $22. And then, of course, in addition, you can purchase coffee, espresso, tea, and, and sweets available through their uh, partner cafe open space. Interesting. Now, yeah, so uh, what happens is uh, guests should expect uh, 15 to 20 cats at a time to be milling about. Uh, mm. So you, it's kind of like speed dating, you know, with human beings. Yeah. You, 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 well, like two or three minutes or whatever, and you move on. Well, here you got 15 to 20 cats, and it's, you know what they say about herding cats. You can't really spend too much time with any one, but you can end up, uh, you know, looking into adopting these cats. That's good. Yeah, so now the events... Uh, the events include yoga with cats. I, oh, I don't boy. know how that works. I, I can't imagine, really. Uh, cat cafes uh, are quite popular in other parts of the world. Did you know that? No, I did not I know didn't that, either. I didn't either. Crumbs and Whiskers founder and cat lady-in-chief Kenjin Singh uh, told the press she was inspired to start her own cat cafe in the U.S. while on a trip to Thailand a couple of years ago. She was traveling there. She met these people on the road who uh, was sharing a meal with them and... Uh, uh, she noticed, uh, the, some friends who, who ran into her, noticed she was giving food to stray dogs and cats. So they decided to celebrate her birthday, her 24th birthday, to take her to a cat cafe. And she remembered thinking, this is amazing. Why haven't I heard of this before? So she decided she was going to go home, quit her job, and start a cafe. And then she actually did it. Thailand, huh? Yeah. Well, uh, is she sure that... The cats weren't being uh, taken to the back. I don't know. I don't even want to go there, oh, uh, just Rob Marinko. I just I can't can't imagine thinking about this. So the news from Donald Trump is well. The first piece of news is the guy's ahead. Rasmussen poll says he's up forty to thirty nine over Hillary Clinton, but it doesn't make everybody happy. I, I, I believe you've uh, you've heard of Barbara Streisand. I have. Right? Okay. Yes. There's still a lot of sexism and a woman being president, you know, and making fun of her the way he insults her right and left and mm. has no facts. But I, I don't know. I can't, I can't believe it. I need the coming to your country if you'll let me in or Canada. So she was talking to an Australian uh, mm-hmm. reporter. So yeah. bottom line, Babs is off to Australia or Canada, <laughs> one of the two, if, if Donald Trump wins. Yeah. And I think one of the things that uh, she doesn't like is, is his immigration stand. Let's, uh, let's listen to the Donald. Within ICE. I am going to create a new special deportation task force focused on identifying and quickly removing the most dangerous criminal illegal immigrants in America who have evaded justice, just like Hillary Clinton has evaded justice, okay? Maybe they'll be able to deport her. So the question is whether Donald Trump should uh-huh. really be putting the hammer down like this. Yeah. Same hammer that Hillary's aide used to smash her BlackBerry. Well, he very goes, controversial, you know, uh, wanting to follow the law. It's he goes down to Mexico, though, yes. and he big win. I mean, there he is with the president of Mexico, and everybody's asking themselves, 
why in the world did the president yeah. of Mexico invite him? Because, you know, Donald's not so popular down there with the wall, and you'll pay for the wall, and, and rapists and killers and so on. Anyway, he's down there. But then he kind of turns it around with this really hard-line speech. Now, Wall Street Journal came out, and they're, they're no big fan of, of Trump on, on his immigration policy. They Their argument is that uh, he isn't softening his immigration policy the way he was promising to do. Uh, and according to that soundbite, it doesn't sound like he is. And he, what their, their point is, is that by instead of focusing on deporting criminal aliens, instead uh, of focusing on you know, sanctuary city issues, he talks about deporting everybody, uh, which is going to be a major problem in terms of, of his electability. And what they showed was a little graph I I as part of their editorial. They showed that the, sh the GOP coalition is shrinking, that if you go back to when George Bush first won the election, 81% of the voters were white. Now it is 72%. So there's a shrinking white share of the electorate. And then when you turn to the folks who might be the most angry with Trump's idea of rounding up 11 million illegals and deporting them, the share of those voters is growing. Uh, the share of black voters went from 10 to 13 percent, about a 45 percent increase. The share of Hispanic voters uh, has has gone up from 7 to 10 percent, about a 40 percent increase. The share of Asian voters has gone up 50 percent. So Trump is appealing arguably, to a shrinking portion of the pie, whereas the growing portion of the pie is not happy with his, his position. So I don't know. It, it's a question as to whether he's going to listen to his advisors who say, just read the teleprompter, you know, don't tick people off, just hope that this Hillary self-destructs. Uh, I, I think there's a huge strategy call he's got to make uh, in the next month, because after that, I mean, they say people are, if they haven't already, they're going to start voting, early voting, within the next 10 days or so. So you have to wonder how much all of the back and forth is really going to affect people's opinions. 944 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC, Royal in for Doug. And Bill Thomas is going to fill us in on how things are looking on the freeways. Bill. Time is 9.49 on Talk Radio 790K ABC. Royal Oaks and for Doug McIntyre. Happy Labor Day to you all. Let's go to the phones. Frank in Costa Mesa wants to weigh in on his Trumpness. Frank, how are you? Oh, good. Hey, you know, when Trump uh, says the kind of these extreme things about the border, and I agree the border is a serious issue, that's what got him this far, he needs to realize that he's only appealing to his base, the voters he's already got. And if he wants to be elected, I think he's got to get more moderates and more uh, right-leaning Democrats to, to say, okay, I'm on your team. But he, if he tamps it down, he loses some of his base. And if he keeps saying the things he does, he's not going to probably win the election. Well, you have a good point. But, I, but in a way, maybe he's taken your advice in terms of the outreach to the African-American voters. I mean, I, I, I was pretty amazed about a week ago when... He was given a speech, and he mentions African-American voters once and then twice. It was like ten times. And now, a couple of days ago, he's at an African-American church. And cynics point out well, he's never been in one before in his 70 years on the planet. But, I mean, Frank, that certainly is a way to reach out to a group that traditionally is not part of his Republican base. I mean, we were just going over the stats. Uh, I think 93% of African-American votes went for Obama. And uh, traditionally, it's between 88 and 90 percent for the Democrats. So maybe maybe he's gotten the message, at least as to that issue. Well, he's going to need more than that, though. He's going to need moderates and independents. And uh, 
I think his extreme views sometimes only appeal to the followers he already has. Well, populism, though, is one way to characterize what he says. Because let's face it, he doesn't follow a William Buckley, Ronald Reagan, Barry Goldwater conservative playbook by any means, to the point where National Review, the big conservative uh, news magazine, came out and absolutely just trashed him. They had, like two or three months ago, they had an issue, you know, the anti-Trump issue. The entire issue was devoted to that. So he's, I think... His strategy, let's face it, he's not an ideologue. He's a winner. And I think his strategy is to reach out to angry people of all stripes. But now you're right. Your initial point is correct. If he if he laser focuses too much on an issue that, you know, where I'm going to round up 11 million people and deport them. And a lot of folks are, are, are just going to say, I can't get behind that. Then he maybe threatens his message. But I think his general theme is cross party lines. Go after populism. Get the angry vote. We've had eight years of of life that we don't like, and we don't want to make it sixteen. Yeah, but I, I think you know, it, American people are angry primarily about the illegal immigrants and the border. I don't think they're quite as angry about the other issues. And this is a one-issue election, really, to me, that has driven Trump into the position he's in. Well, the NRA is a very powerful force, and I think he's trying to get on that train. I mean, you remember Hillary kind of stepped in it about a month ago. She was in a, in a news, um, in, a, in an interview on television, not a regular press conference. But she was asked, does the Second Amendment guarantee a right to own a gun? And instead of saying, absolutely, yeah, listen to the Supreme Court. We have reasonable restrictions, sure. Instead, there was this awkward pause where she, well, uh... You've got, you know, every right has its restrictions and so on. And I think Trump correctly or smartly tried to, to seize on that and move in on the idea that most Americans are behind the NRA's idea that, doggone it, yes, the, the Second Amendment does guarantee people's rights to, uh, to own and uh, bear arms. The question then is to what degree are reasonable regulations are appro- uh, appropriate. But there again, I think he was trying to cross party lines to appeal to the voters. But wasn't it 10 or 15 years ago he said he was for single-payer insurance and that he was for gun control? I mean, there's lots of videotape of him saying those things. Is it okay that he's changed now? or? Oh, you're, you make a good point, and not only those issues, but abortion as well. I think there's a lot of videotape out there talking uh, where he's talking uh, favorably about the idea of pro-choice, and I think he tries to get away with it by saying people evolve, and he does point to Ronald Reagan, who did change his opinion about abortion over time. So I think people tend to give a pass to somebody uh, when it's just sort of ancient history about old statements. If currently they seem to flip-flop just purely for political uh, exploitation, I think the voters can hold it against him. But I, I don't I don't get the sense that people are really holding Trump's sort of bipartisan, liberal, I'm going to give money to everybody type past. It just doesn't seem like uh, they're, uh, they're going after him because of that. Hey, Frank, appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us on this Labor Day, 9.54 the time, here on Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal and for Doug, stay with us. Looking for some cross talk, baby, believe me. I need cross talk, baby. You know what that catchy tune means? It means it's time for some cross talk. 
with the one and only David Lazarus in for the one and only Peter Tilden. David, how are you? I'm good. I'm working. It's Labor Day. Well, it, it is Labor Day, but yeah. you know, the radio never sleeps. <laughs> this is true, and neither do we. Great show, you guys. Well, really thanks. Fun. Thanks. This has been fun, and there's been so much to talk about. And, uh, you know, the, the Donald Trump and, and Hillary stories, it's just sort of the evergreen topic. But what's on your radar screen? Oh, man, that's never going to go away. In right. fact, we're going to tee off... Uh, with Uncle Donald, and we'll look at his outreach to the African-American and Latino communities uh, and ask the musical question, really, really, are you kidding me or yeah, what? We were just talking about that. What is your sense? Do you think that that's, uh, that's going to work at all? I mean, are there any stats or any kind of instant overnight polls suggesting that he might be onto a little something? You know, I I'll say this, and it's not just minority voters, it's all voters. It's all about walking the walk when you talk the talk, and I think Minority voters are especially sensitive to this coming from a white man. And let's face it, this is a man who has spent months insulting people, right and left. And then you turn around and say, you're yeah, left. Guy. All right, right and right. <laughs> and uh, and then you start turning around and saying, but, you know, what have you got to lose? I can think of a few things you got to lose. Also, because it's Labor Day, we're going to look at income inequality. The fact that CEO pay keeps going up and your pay isn't going anywhere with their organized labor. You know, back on Trump for a second, some people were speculating, David, that he, Trump doesn't really expect or really care about getting a lot of votes from the African-American community. Instead, what he's trying to do is send a message of reasonableness to everybody to try to counteract the idea that he's a mental patient. I, I don't know if he was sensitive about the idea of, of you know, during a briefing, he's talking about, why can't we use nuclear weapons? But I would think that would be a devastating uh, sort of meme if it starts to circulate through the society that this this guy, you know, Hillary's great line at the convention. This guy, you can bait him with a tweet. Do we want him with his finger on the nuclear button? Maybe this is his way to try to counteract that, having nothing to do with getting black voters. And I think there's something to that. I think we'll see more of uh, stunts like uh, what he pulled with the Mexican president and trying to look presidential. I think it's all about the optics in that case. The simple fact is, though, there is no road to the White House for this man without expanding the voter base. The GOP knows this. That's why after Romney's demise, they came out with that postmortem that says, if we don't bring in Latino voters, if we don't bring in younger voters, if we don't bring in women voters, we're lost. And I think Trump is cognizant of that. The problem is you don't get to just turn around after a lifetime of not being that guy and suddenly say, I'm that guy. Right. On the other hand, aren't these political obituaries sometimes premature? I mean, Goldwater was killed, and 16 years later, Reagan ascends. Mondale and McGovern both won exactly one state, and nobody said, oh, the Democratic Party is over. You know, it's, they're dead. I mean, no matter how badly Trump gets crushed this year, you know, there will be another day for the Republican Party. True, and you got to look at this year as well. Hillary's unpopularity numbers are so profound that it creates an amazing, almost inexplicable opportunity for Donald Trump. So in that sense, Hillary's her own worst enemy. And it's really unfair because, you know, she didn't wield the hammer on that Blackberry of hers. She had an, you know, an aide did that. Well, she outsourced it. We don't. He may have misunderstood her instructions, you know. She may have said, hand me the Blackberry, and he heard, hammer me the Blackberry. I could see the confusion. I just don't know. Yeah. Hey, David Lazarus.